All right, we're here in Studio 2 at Sunset Sound. It's November 26th, the day after Thanksgiving. We're here with the hardest-hitting man in show business, the author of Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, and also a new publication of Modern Drummer Legends, which Kenny's been on the cover four times now? Four times, yeah. Incredible. And this is, we were just leafing through this, but the pictures, the stories, you have uh, your your notes on here? Well, I, I, I'm well known for writing extremely detailed charts, so I decided to yeah, put some of the, these are original charts. So that's Straight No Chaser from a Buddy, Bitch, Buddy Rich Big Band recording I did. Wow. And there's some, there's a couple of charts, I think there's a Michelle Branch chart that I recorded right here yeah. on her first big record. Paper and Fire, John Mellencamp. Yeah. Those are all my handwritten. <laughs> yeah. Wow, very cool. And these are available everywhere you buy books? That's Amazon, definitely. And the, that book will be Modern Drummer Publications. The, other, the real takeaway from that is, is just, a, which is what's made me successful and stay successful for 40 years in, in one of the most difficult businesses in the world, the music business, is, is this just self-discipline, hard work, and perseverance, all fueled from that being my purpose in life. This is the greatest joy, the greatest motivator for me as a human being while I'm still breathing is I just love music and I love the drums. And when you pick the thing that is really you, your purpose, your deepest desire, your truth, why you even want to breathe air, when you find that, you will be unstoppable, undeniable, and super authentic because you're not acting. A hundred percent. And that's what I admire about you so much because there's no shortcuts in this game. People think, you know, with the social media now and let's get famous overnight on TikTok, I mean, that's not real. <laughs> you know? And no. it's not a career that I want to have that doesn't have longevity. Let me ask you about that then. So you start drumming as a kid. Do you remember the moment when you said, I'm good at this. I wanted to do this for a living. Do you remember when you <laughs> thought like, I mean, I play I, guitar. I remember when I was like, holy shit, I'm getting good at this. I, I, ne <laughs> I never thought I've ever been good enough. I mean, I'm obviously good enough to do it, and it's exciting, but I got this phrase, um, I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. And obviously I've been rewarded by my hard work, yeah. but I'm also, I'm kind of like, I look at it like I'm Tom Brady, being Tom Brady. I mean, that guy, it's not, for him, football is not a sport, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. For me, music and drumming is a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's not just playing the drums. It's the way I'm wired. So l you could probably take me out of this and put me into something else that I was just as equally as passionate about, and I'd be doing the same thing. Yep. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually what I am uh, 30, 365 days a year. So with Brady, when he is done with the Super Bowl, he can't help it, but he's already thinking you know, how to be physically right, mentally right. He loves it. So uh, for him, winning one Super Bowl is amazing. Winning two in a row, impos impossible. And he did it. Being in 10 Super Bowls and winning seven, not even close, anybody. Nobody on the planet Earth has done that. And when people make fun of him, I go, what? You hate Einstein because he came up with too many inventions exactly. or formulas? I know. What are you kidding me? This is, this is our goal. This is our North Star. So 
I relate to him because I feel the same way as I sense he feels. This is the lifestyle. So when did I think I was good enough? Well, when I was on Saturday Night Live, I th thought I was insecure and nervous, but I felt like, oh, my God, I think I'm making it. <laughs> when Jack and Diane went to number one, I was at Sunset Marquee. Yeah. And went to number one. My reaction was ecstasy for about two seconds, and then I freaked out because I went, I'm not number one. They could expect me to do this again, but John hasn't written the song. I don't know what to do on a song that he hasn't written. I got to do it again. I'm not number one. I don't. I don't play number one hits every day, and so I, there was a reality check where I was ecstatic because back then, when you were number one, you were friggin' number one. Are you allowed to swear on this thing? Yeah. You Fuck were fucking yeah. number one because <laughs> it's not like some people say, "Yeah, I've been on three, thirty number one hit singles." What charts are you talking about? Back then, there was only two charts. Yep. You were either album-oriented charts or singles charts. And if you were number one back then, you were on every radio station, every TV show. You were obnoxious. You couldn't get away from Jack and Diane. And that song is still Still being, can't. <laughs> I know, yeah, it's still being played today. So anyway, yeah, those moments, I felt like I'm making it. Yeah. I never thought I've made it. I know. Listen. I just came back from a two-week tour with Fogarty, and everybody, they hear me practicing these technique exercises. I have a system called, the, it's a functional practice routine. Four in the morning, I'll get a text from the keyboard player that says, man, you're exceptionally in good time tonight. His right below me, I'm doing double, because I'm, that's what Tom Brady does. It's like you have to be, before you even get, for me, get on stage, I have to have so much in place with sleep, diet, you know, uh, you know, practicing, warming up three different times a day, specific exercises for that show, and I have a drum solo, so I have to amp up my technique. Um, and then there's another component. So you have to be prepared mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually to just get on the field. But then it's the second component is adapt or die. Yep. Now think about it. Tom Brady on the line. He, they got to play. He's trying to figure out what that defense is going to do. They're trying to fool him. They're trying to fuck him up. People who don't know what football is, that defense is purposely disguising. They're, set, they're making him think they're doing this, and when that ball snapped, bam, they switch, they move, people go forward, they go backwards. They're trying to fuck up his play. So it's called adapt or die. And when I get on stage, there's other guys in the band, and things go, go wrong. Or my earpiece, uh, the, the wire snapped. And so suddenly I'm hearing only through one ear. Back up, I mean, it's adapt or die. And if you can live under those two things, you know, preparing and then being willing to adapt or die in any given situation, you're going to have an incredible life because yeah. you've accepted reality. Well, and also just how much, uh, how grueling it is to be a touring drummer it's so hard. I can't even, if I go to San Francisco for a night, I'm like, yeah. I need all my supplies. Yeah. And it's just, you've been doing this your whole life, you yeah. know? So it's like, I, you, you're really good on uh, vitamins and sleep yeah. and water. And I mean, you know, I drink, I drink my wine and my whiskey, but the thing is, I'm very, very aware all the time of where I'm at. And everything's about my career and performing. So if I start seeing that something's getting in the way, like, I just did a Kings of Chaos gig on our day off, uh, me and James Lomenzo, who's also in the Fogarty band. And, you know, after the show in Macon, Georgia, we drove three hours to South Carolina. 
you, you know, we're rehearsing. I'm rehearsing. We rehearsed before we went on this little tour. But, you know, I'm running through the stuff on our day off. So we rehearsed with uh, four songs with Ann Wilson, four songs with Billy Gibbons, four songs with Dee Snyder. Wow. Just a sound check, and that was it. That was the only, I write everything out. I know every tempo. I know I am so prepared. But my point is I only got one hour of sleep that night and then had to fly to Miami, then fly, three-hour layover, then fly to Key West. I immediately went into a uh, dressing room and just laid there for five <laughs> hours to, knowing everything was for that show that night. And I didn't want anything to get in the way of me not performing at the level that John Fogarty demands. Sure. And he hears every note you play. It looks, so Creedence sounds simple on paper, but any backbeat that's a little bit slightly laid back he likes everything on the edge he wants you to drive him in the band and i have to study and listen to him every note every song and the flow and you got to watch I mean, all kinds of things talk about adapt or die but my point is yeah i'm always preparing for that sh show and it's always the super bowl to me you were here uh, a few weeks ago i ran into you you were doing some you were here on a session but you were doing some interviews uh while you were recording here that day um, I don't, Ozzy Osbourne, I think, was in three. You were in this room, but it was the day that Charlie Watts had died. Yeah. And we had ran into each other. So let's do that interview we've been talking about for a year now. What did Charlie Watts, uh, as a drummer, mean to you, and how did he inspire you? Well, Charlie, <laughs> you know, when I was younger, I thought, yeah, I can play like that. You know, it's the old famous, you know, until you realize, and, and, and what, the, the guy was the ultimate musician. He played the instrument, you know, he did the right thing on that instrument in a band. The four concepts of drumming to me are, pick the right beat for the song, otherwise don't even show up. Second, you gotta keep time. First two notes you play define ta time, the measurement between or ga. If you repeat it, you've got steady time. Third thing, make it feel good. And that, those three things happen in like milliseconds, okay? And then anything you add to that is creativity, it's a creative idea. So beat time and groove is like a cake, and then you put icing on it, which is the creativity. Charlie was that guy, now think about this. Satisfactions, first song I ever heard the Stones do. That's it, the whole way through. Why would he do that? He was a jazz drummer, why? Because he knew it was the right thing. Once you establish that, and if you get away from it, you fuck, you fuck it up. Yeah. Even when the, hey, 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 even his soul is fills. There were no fills. That was his fill. Now, as a young kid, you're going like, ah, oh, man, I can play that. But then as an adult, I realized, genius, because he knew that was the foundation of the entire song. And I'll give you a story. I mean, he's, if you listen to you know, any of the songs. It's Keith's guitar and Charlie's sound and beat. As simple as it is, it's the right beat for the song. Now, I'm recording with the Stones at Ocean Way. I started by doing Charlie's solo record, and I was playing percussion, weird percussion, and he loved it, kept asking me back. So one day I walk in, and it's holds all of the Stones now, because, see, w that bridges the Babylon record. Monday, let's just say, figuratively, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it was Keith's room. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays, it was um, oh, wow. Mick, Mick's room. Yeah. They were making two different records. Finally, Don was said, 
dude, you're not the Stones until you play together. But they're brilliant. What they do is they experiment. They're, all they're trying to do is bring ideas in to the Stones. During that interview, I had to do some research for uh, Sirius Radio. Uh, I, had to, I came back and did my own show, and I learned stuff about the Stones. I didn't know Keith and, and, and Mick would go and take vacations together, not because they loved each other, because they were learning and absorbing the cultures. You know, uh, uh, you know, they went to a small little town outside of Sao Paulo, and that's where they came up with um, Honky Tonk Woman. It was originally a Latin song. And it didn't end up that way because the Stones have a way of knowing, nah, but let's take that idea. And that's where they came up with the cowbell because it was a Latin thing. And then Keith coming up with this genius cool part, it's done before the vocals even come in. It's done. It's then Mick comes on top of that. So, anyway, I'm recording a song and I'm playing a gourd, which just beads on it with a brush. Because I do weird. I had a brush. I'm going. And Keith or Mick's playing acoustic guitar. Mick comes up to me. It's 4 a.m. and goes, Hey, Kenny, I, I love what you're doing, but don't get in the way of Charlie's hi hat. Okay, here's my point. The lead singer of one of the greatest rock and roll bands ever cares about his drummers playing and feel because he knows that's the Stones. He knows that's the Rolling Stones. Don't get in the way of Charlie's Hayek. I know we're going to need that, and that's magical. And, of course, when the song came out, I was mixed out of it, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) But I just loved it. So Charlie Watts may not be the most obviously technical drummer, you know, but his musicianship and his sound, it was extraordinary in one of the greatest, biggest rock and roll bands ever. If you can't see that, then you're missing out on the essence of being a great musician. You know, the Stones did five records here. They worked on Exile here. They did Exile. Beggar's Banquet, uh, Let It Bleed. We worked, I mean, on and on and on. So much great work. I mean, that's why we're doing this show. It's 60 years as a recording studio. Um, you know, it was Disney for yeah. the first three years, but um, it's just let's document and talk about sessions. And, you know, you're such an amazing drummer and you've done so much work here. And, you know, we have this brotherhood uh, from Indiana University. Yeah. We're both alumni. Yeah. Of, I think is one of the greatest schools ever. It, and it then is. also, which... The Jacob School of Music, which you attended, but was called just the music school. It was called Indiana University School of Music, and then the Jacobs family obviously put down some money, and now it's their school. And I have a a Jacobs, a Kenny Aronoff Jacobs School percussion scholarship. Wow! That's I I set it in place that'll be there till the world explodes. That's yeah. You 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 put money down, or you it's in my will, and the kids will be getting. uh, They've been it's been over twenty something years, and uh, one of my ex students thought of the idea of doing it. Started out, we both would put five hundred dollars in a year. Now a kid can get. I mean, might be as high as ten thousand a year. You know, and and this helps percussionists. uh, Yeah. Anyway, that school of music, um, you know. This school of music and what makes a great school is that it's not about entitlement. It's not about laziness. You don't sh- get a trophy because you show up. 
My first lesson with my teacher, I, I, for somebody that didn't have a pencil eraser, he says, get the fuck out of here, you get an F. Don't ever show up anywhere without a pencil and eraser. He was right. And I became one of the most detailed chart writers in the world, but he was right. He says, you gotta write everything down. You need to notate, you need to, you can't possibly remember what everybody's telling you. And that was my first lesson, and this guy, there was, no, he was ruthless. It wasn't whiplash. He didn't throw anything at me. What a great movie that is. Yeah, I know. But like, I'll give you a quick example. Like I walked in freshman year, and I'm standing there scared to death of him, and he's sitting at his desk. If you're facing me and uh, standing there with my sticks in my bag, and he goes, he's writing, he goes, that means give me your lesson book. He's opening it up. He's writing, puts a post-it there, goes, F-sharp, harmonic minor, starting with the right hand, two octaves, three, <laughs> four. And I'm still standing there. And he looks at me and goes, Kenny, are you happy here at Indiana University School of Music? I'm crapping in my pants. He says, don't you ever come into a lesson or an orchestra rehearsal or a rock and roll rehearsal and not be ready. You never know when the boss is going to say go. You're not sitting there picking your nose or flirting with some girl. You come in there and you be prepared. Those are some of the skills this guy taught me. And, oh my God, you're doing Kennedy Center honors and things like that. You can't fuck up. A drummer fucks up, you're out. Dude, the, 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 the attention to detail and understanding, okay, then comes Sting, then comes Dave Gold, then comes Lady Gaga, then comes Bruno Mars, then comes Chris Cornell. You know, each one of those people are different, like, personalities or corporations. I'm working with all these different corporations, and it ain't about me. It's about them. It's about the corporation. So Indiana University taught me these type of skills that I wasn't aware of at the time. I kept thinking, man, I guess, what is this going to do for rock and roll? You know, when I get, you know, but it does. It's discipline and, sure. and preparation and and you know, being a running back where every time you hit the ball, you don't get a touchdown. You got 11 guys trying to kill you. I wish we had teachers like that today. I mean, they well, need to be really teach about life and lessons dude, that I'm, are going to help you, not just coddle these little dude, assholes. Dude, <laughs> don't get me on that platform because I, I can't stand laziness and entitlement. I just can't. I said, you know, but, you know, I, I grew up where that just never even occurred to me. You're on your own. You make it. It's, you, it's up to you. So your story starts on the East Coast, though, in Massachusetts you were raised, but then you do a, one year at Amherst School of Music. How did you get to Indiana? Was it a better school you had heard about? Did you know somebody that went there? Okay, so the top three schools in the country, and s still are, Indiana University School of Music, Juilliard run by, you know, in New York, which is, you know, yeah, and then Eastman School of Music where Steve Gadd went in Rochester. Um, it's done by a rating system and, and, and all kinds of things that I don't know about. But anyway, I was not good enough to get into any of those by a long shot. In high school, I wasn't in the marching band. In high school, I wasn't really? in the orchestra. It just wasn't. I grew up in a small little town of 3,000 in the regional high school. It just didn't have great music program. Plus, I was a jock, too. So I, I was in the sports. So... After school, that's what I was doing. It was either soccer, lacrosse, or ski. I was, on a, I was a downhill racer because we had snow back then. Wow. Point is, I 
was, I was also playing in bands. I was in clubs when I was 13 playing rock and roll. So I'm playing Hendrix and Stones and, and James Brown and Sly Stone and, and the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And why would I want to be in a marching band with squeaky this and, or an orchestra with a clarinet? It just was not something I desired. So I was great, man. It was just like school, sports, homework, and then we had a barn on our property. And we had rock and roll uh, band practice every night in my barn. So anyway... What kind of stuff are you, you interested into? Uh, what kind of stuff is influencing you then? Music. Oh, d definitely the Stones, Hendrix, big time. Whatever was on the radio, uh, uh, Creedence Stones, uh, Hendrix, Zeppelin, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sly Stone, James Brown, Cream, a uh, little bit of The Doors. We just, and the things were, you know, bands were coming, every week was another big band, you know? Sure, yeah. So, anyway, the kid in my town was getting better, technically. I said, Tommy, man, you, you're getting your chops are getting good. What are, you, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm studying with the percussionists from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which is three wow. miles, or summer festival is three miles from my house. Oh, yeah. And my parents used to take me there to see orchestral, orchestral concerts all the time. And, um, but I, you know, I mean, classical and jazz were on my parents' turntables all the time. They grew up in New York. So it was classical music and serious hardcore, big band and bebop. So I, that was my whole world uh, until rock and roll came. But anyway, I started taking lessons with this guy. <laughs> Let me tell you how the first lesson went. <laughs> I get, I'm a little hungover because I was hanging out with the football cheerleaders the night before. I was a sophomore in high school, so I'm like 16. And uh, maybe 15 at that point. I get on a bus and go to Boston or Newton. I get off and I go up to Arthur Press is his name, principal percussionist. These guys are like, when they went into music, their parents were like, are you kidding me? They were poor. You don't go into music. You got to be a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman, not this music shit. And rock and roll, and, too. Yeah, and he busted his ass. So anyway, he goes, what's your name? He says, Kenny. Kenny what? I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, Kenny Aronoff. He says, what have you prepared for me today? I'm like, what do you mean? Like audition? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get the memo. He goes, well, have you, can you play me a mallet piece? I says, what are mallets? Wow. And he's like losing it. Marimba, uh, you know, vibes. Uh, I said, I don't play. So you have a timpani piece for me. He says, I've never played timpani before. And he goes, why are you here? What do you play? I said, I play drum set. Oh, you play drum set. Come on down. We go, this is outside. I wasn't even in the house yet. <laughs> we go down the basement. <laughs> and he puts on blood, sweat, and tears spinning wheels, which I'd been playing along to on my, my, my uh, you know, my turntable with headphones, stereo, and about 30 seconds, he stops, yanks me by my collar and points to a practice pad. He basically started me from the beginning. Now, so I spent sophomore, junior, and senior year studying with this guy good enough to get it, to play a little bit of timpani, mallets, and snare drum, and a little bit of reading. It's good enough to get into UMass at Amherst. It's more of an ed school, plus they had the number nine lacrosse team in the country and I was big lacrosse star in high school. What I are you thinking though is the end game of going to a school like this that you're gonna play in an orchestra at that time? That's, that is the golden question. Funny, I never even, 
I never really was ever going to play in an orchestra. Why did I do it? I think it was, I, I, that's a tough question, man, because I was like, why would I do that? But you have to understand, there was no school of rock. I mean, Berkeley existed, but it was more of a jazz thing, and yeah. I knew that you, you're not going to make it in jazz. Jazz was going off the charts. I didn't know where to study rock. I was too... I was too scared to move to New York or to L.A. or Nashville at that time. So I thought five years of college, because in our family, that's what you do. You get an education, and then from there, you pivot that into what you're going to do. So I thought, you know, for four years, I thought it was a four-year thing. I, 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 I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Meanwhile, I'm playing in rock bands all through college and fusion bands and big bands and every, anything that had to do with drums, I was doing. But when I was there... Oh, man, I got my ass kicked. I mean, I was behind, you know, we have conducting, we have sightseeing, we have piano, we have music history, music literature, you have uh, theory for like forever, and I was way behind. It was very intimidating. But Eastman, number third school, is five hours from UMass, and I said to my dad, I got to transfer. I'm not the best here, but I got to go to the, I want to be in the best school. Yeah. So I go up there to audition. I got in, but they didn't have room for me. In other words, I passed the test, they only take 14 students. So I'm Whoa. bummed out. I come back, and I remember at one point I say to this hot cellist, hey, uh, what are you doing this summer? He says, I'm going to Aspen. I says, what's Aspen? He says, well, it's this elite student orchestra in Aspen, Colorado, run by Juilliard. Wow. I went, Juilliard? It's number two. I went, I got to go. Plus, she's hot. they're going to be there. So I, they tell you, prepare an audition on three out of four categories, mallets, which is marimba, uh, timpani, snare drum, and multiple percussion. So being me, I'd prepare on all four. Make a tape, send it in, don't hear from anybody. So last day of school, I got my summer plan. Study with the percussionists from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and I've got an Almond Brothers band now. We're going to play all Almond Brothers music all summer. Oh. I had my Neil Young band, my That's Hendrix cool. band. So it was Almond Brothers. So... Um, it's more of a jam band kind of thing, yeah. too. Which, ironically, I'm going to play the last show of the Almond family band here at, at the Wiltern in December. Oh, 19th. yeah. Robert Randolph was just in last week. I flew him in from Nashville for Orianthi's record. Is he doing but he, it? He's playing it, too. Well, I'm going to be yeah. on it. Sweet. It's, I'll be there, too. Are you playing all night as the Hush Four songs. Okay. That's what I've been told. So, and Devin is going to record a record. I've got to tell him to come here. I think he's got another studio because I'm supposed to be on that record. We got to do it here. I'm going to talk to him today. So anyway, nice. I <laughs> so the last day of school, I'm driving away, and I went shit. I forgot my mail. I go back, I get my mail. It looks like a check. I open it up, accepted to Aspen last minute. I think I was a alternate because when I got there, I was by far the most the worst percussionist there, the most underdeveloped. These kids were playing mallets and timpani when they were six years old it was just ridiculous i got my ass crushed there <laughs> yelled at just made fun of but the teacher there was head of the percussion department at indiana university and i went wow. i'm going to iu and he says come back in january and audition i went no i'm auditioning here he says come back in january i said no i'm going from here to indiana university number one school of music are you kidding me and he goes you're serious about this? I went, yeah. He says, to get into Indiana University, you have to audition for four departments. I think we have teachers from Indiana, and they did. They had brass, woodwinds, uh, opera or vocals, and percussion. I prepared an audition, spent like six weeks preparing for it, got in. Wow. Spent four years at IU, 
got my ass kicked, but by the time I was this junior, second semester at IU in my third year, I got the principal timpanist, there's five orchestras there. I'm in the primo orchestra as a timpanist, and then it's just, you know, and every year I was at IU, I auditioned to go to Tanglewood, which is the number one school of music, uh, summer program in the country, if not the world. First, I have to audition for Vic Firth, who's, you know, famous oh, stick yeah, maker, yeah. timpanist of the bar. I fail the first year, come back second year. Nope, third year, fail. Fourth year, I get in. The drive that you have. Drive. Yes. That's the message. They take seven percussionists in the whole world. I got to work with Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, Arthur Fiedler, Sergio Zauer, and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Dude, that was the, the cream, that was the, the thing that encapsulated me into you are good enough to get in an orchestra. And when I graduated, I get accepted to, I get into uh, the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra and turn it down. Wow. Are you, because are you living off campus then in Bloomington? Yeah. And with some roommates by yourself? So the first year I was, uh, I, the first year I went to IU, I was in the Adelot house and I convinced them to have a single because I had horrible allergies. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's how I got out of, the, out of the Vietnam War, too. Oh, dude, if I sneeze the Viet Cong, they're going to shoot us. <laughs> it's, I went through my draft in Indianapolis, dude. That's, a, that's in my book. It's a crazy story. But anyway, um, and then, then we moved off behind Bear's Place. You remember where Bear's oh, yeah, Place? Yeah, 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 famous, you guys, famous, famous place for... Uh, you know, just great pizza and drinks, and 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 they have a mother bears, mother bears, and yeah, bears yeah, yeah. right there across from the music school. And I lived two streets over on Hunter, off wow. of maybe third, no, a Hunter and Jordan, Hunter and Jordan. And I could stumble home, and there was uh, four people in this house. Uh, it was me, cellist, flautist, and a violinist, and uh, you know. And it was great, and uh, I did uh, three. I did the rest of my whole three years there. Three Are you years playing there. in rock bands around town too, yeah. or are you just focused on the classical nope. training? As much rock and roll as I could do, fusion, rock, Latin, anything. And there's a famous club which you know called the Bluebird. Shout out Dave Kubiak, we love him. I love him. And you know, I mean, I saw people like Sonny Rollins playing there. I mean, Mellencamp when we would before we do Farm Aid. We'd go and take over that club and bring in like Lou Reed, you know, John uh, uh, Fogarty, Bonnie Raitt. Uh, we'd bring John Prine, whoever we were going to play with at Farm Aid. We'd go in there and take over the club and, and play our show in there. That's, you know, I'm friends with uh, Teddy and Justice and, you know, his kids. Oh, wow. And uh, Justice lives on the East Coast, but her husband, Sister. Michael Moore. Uh, well, Teddy lives out here. Ted, no, he's and gonna... Justice is the younger one. She yeah. lives on uh, Hilton Head. Right, they just heard Vicky that. Vicky moved down there. Yeah, right. <coughs> um, and then actually, I uh, saw Hud. Uh, wow. He lives over in Venice, right? Or Marina Del Rey. But he does? Yeah. He's out here now? Yep. He's in uh, working for Interscope, I believe. And then, oh, um, yeah. His dad probably his, helped him out. His mom, too, lives out here because she's with the Rolling Stone guy. Uh, Who lives out here? Um, Elaine. Oh, Elaine, I heard. Yeah. She's, uh, didn't she marry somebody from... Uh, uh, you know, yeah, Penske, Penske Jay Penske. He owns Rolling Stone magazine and a ton of other he publications. Does? Yeah, they uh, awesome. live over. I've gotten a message from her. She says, "Tell Kenny I say hi." She's the sweetest lady ever. She's unbelievable. And, um, um, I love their family, but 
I mean, and also Mellencamp is just a complete god in Indiana because, yeah. you know, it really is. You have great cities, and I love it back there, but it's a lot of small towns, no pun intended. And, um, you know, he's the biggest musical person that's ever came out of there. No kidding. I mean, he was just massive on those records, like Uh-huh and American Fool, which we'll talk about, uh, him and basketball, and David Letterman are like the three biggest things. <laughs> and the Indy 500. And the Indy 500. But for those that don't know, and I know you've told these stories for 700 times, yeah. but how did you get hooked up with him? How did you audition for the John Mellencamp band? Because Tom Knowles was the drummer, right? Yeah, okay. exactly, from St. Louis. So... I turned down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra when I graduate uh, college, and it was a shock to everybody, including me. And the reason why I turned it down, I didn't know what was happening back then, but I, I'm very clear what, what was happening. I was following my heart and not my brain. My brain was saying, you've got to go be in this orchestra. And my heart was going, no. This was that pivotal moment where I was found out, realized what my purpose was. It was just oozing out of me. Thank God I followed my heart. Didn't use my driving brain to go, no, you gotta go to Israel. I turned down certainty for uncertainty. I turned yeah. down certainty for complete possibility because I didn't know who to call to make it in rock and roll. There's no method book. There's no, it's not like you go to law school and you got a law job. Yeah. Or, you know, there's a way to, you, to get a job. This is like, music is like, there's nothing is defined. So, anyway, I spent a year practicing and studying drum set. Eight hours a day I'd practice, just drum set, freaked out that I spent all that time on classical music, and I, I couldn't see how the two worlds were gonna meet uh, yet. Um, and so I'm freaking out, like you gotta catch up now. It's like doing graduate school at home. And my teachers were uh, Gary Chester in New York and Alan Dawson, a jazz drummer in Boston. And then a kid from Indianapolis, this talk, we're talking, he's, convinces me to move back to Bloomington and start a band and one of the dads was going to invest like his dad was going to invest 30 grand which back then was like 300 yeah <laughs> so we're going to get a truck lights PA our own truck lights and PA we could roll into any club and we have our own everything and 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 that was the premise of of and then we'd write songs we got a house do you remember the Roach Motel it was, a, it was right on, it was, <laughs> we were the cockroaches. It was like, it was seven of us in a band house, basically, off of Dun Meadow. And, and what we would do is we'd practice every day, or I'd be practicing drums every day. The idea was to write songs, get a record deal, you know, the, the normal thing. And then you go on, you make a record, then you tour, and you just repeat it. After three years, it, it didn't happen. I'm 27, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So I said, all right. You got to go to New York, Nashville, L.A. I picked New York so I just knew more people there. And I'm a week before going, and I have lunch at this restaurant on 10th Street called the Dow Restaurant with the singer-songwriter Ruthie Allen. And she said, eh, Kenny, what are you up to? Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I'm going to go to New York. She says, hey, you know this guy, uh, Johnny Cougar? He's got, you know, he's on this new uh, network called MTV. I went, yeah, and I hear him on the radio. He's got I Need a Lover. It's all over the radio. And that record with something about going to... Uh, it, was, it was the John, John Cougar. It went from Johnny Cougar to John Cougar. Biography. It, wasn't, it was after that. I Need a Lover was on Biography. It was. Yeah. And then they re-released it and put it... Th oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. Okay. You know what that was? That was his manager. and released it in Australia. Something Kid. 
The kid inside was before that. This was just John Mellencamp, and it had something about going to Miami. They made a record in Miami, and then Sugar Marie or some... Well, I'll think of it in a yeah, moment. Yeah, anyway, so... You know about Johnny Cougar at the time, though. I he, do, because, uh, I mean, I heard the songs on the radio. I, you know, I was coming out of a fusion world, so it was yeah. like I wasn't yet... I didn't own radio, the, the concept of being Charlie Watts or Ringo Starr. I, I hadn't gone back to that yet. So I went, and she said, and he just fired his drummer last night. I went, ding, 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 ding. Holy shit. Radio, MTV, records, touring. He just, they just opened up for Kiss or somebody. Yeah. I'm like, it all just hit me just then. That's, this is what you've been wanting to do ever since you saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show at 10 years old and went, I told my mom, I said, who are those guys? She said, they're the Beatles. I said, well, I don't know, I wanna play in the Beatles. Call them up now, I wanna be in the Beatles. That's what I wanna do. Play drums in a rock band at 10. And of course she didn't call them up. So I started my own bands. First band was the Alley Cats. My point is, now I went, yes! Exactly, this is what I wanna do. I was right back to 10 years old. So I go running out of the restaurant to a payphone, because there was no <laughs> cell phone, put a quarter in, call up Mike Wanchek, the guitar player from Mellencamp, and uh, he, um, I said, Mike, it's Kenny Aronoff. Hey, Kenny, how you doing? I says, how did you know him? Uh, we just being in clubs. He comes to yeah. see our stream winner, Fusion Band. Yeah. I said, Mike, you know, I'd like to audition. I'm, I mean, I'm moving, uh, I was gonna move to New York, but I, you know, this is incredible. He says, I'll call you in two weeks. So they started checking around. And this is where that hard work, discipline, that, that lifestyle really pays off. They checked around and everybody said, that's the guy. Nice. You gotta have Aronoff audition. This guy is a motherfucker. He works his ass off and blah, blah. It was only positive things. So I get a call back in two weeks and, I, and they said, yeah, John, you can audition. I guess I was one of 50, I was told. Wow. First one. And is Don Gaiman producing that? No. Okay, this is still like uh, yeah. Chestnut Street Incident era. Yeah. I don't remember who produced the John Cougar record, the one before. Anyway, that's the one they said, just be familiar with it. Well, yeah. me, I write every note <laughs> So I'm going like, why are the drummers playing so simple on this stuff? You know, why aren't they doing like Vinnie Caliuta stuff or Steve Smith? And I was hadn't learned how to be a drummer for the radio, because I tell people this all the time. Well, I'll get to that in a second, yeah, but yeah, my yeah. point is, I memorize everything, I practice six, eight hours a day. Where do you audition? So we go out to Lake Monroe, I got this leaking old car, and I've somehow managed to stuff two bass drums and Tom Tom, <laughs> I got this massive drum kit. I get out of the car, I don't look cool at all, I hadn't got my, I, I didn't care about as much how you look, it's more how you sound, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a total muso guy. I get out of the car and John's just looking at me, I can see, he goes, wrong. <laughs> Looks at the car, it's leaking oil on his driveway. <laughs> wrong. And then I start pulling, and I go up to him, hey, hey John, nice to meet you. Kenny Aronoff. And he goes, John Mallencamp. Shakes my hand, turns around, walks in. That's went, him. Wow, wow. This guy's different. Was it a studio though? No, it was his house. Okay. So it was uh, on Lake Monroe. The uh, old one, yeah. Oh, I never and it was built on a ravine, so I had to take my drums down, down to the lower floor, you know, uh, small. Because he had some money then, because he had a hit. And he, he didn't was have a... big money. Yeah, not like So he, now. 
Because shortly after Pat Benatar did I Need a Lover and made it a big hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we, I set up. Because he got big in, sorry to cut, switch channels, but he got big in Europe first. No, that's, he didn't. He, he got dropped when he was in Europe. I thought he was making noise in Europe, but wasn't he selling was records making here. It. What happened was, and this I explain in my book, why he was in such a shitty mood. When he made Biography, I think, yeah. and it was Main Man, which was Tony DeFries, Bowie's manager. The records made, they made him look like a James Dean kind of guy, and Europe didn't buy it. They're like, yeah. really? You know, and so... When the record was done, Tony shoves the record across the table to John. And John goes, who's Johnny Cougar? That's and you. <laughs> he says, that's you. <laughs> and so, and John says, it's not my name. He says, oh, it's your name if you want this record to come out. Now think about it. He grew up in southern Indiana, the Rust Belt. His uncles were like bricklayers and cement guys. You come home and say, hey, my name's Johnny Cougar. They go, what the fuck's wrong with the Mellencamp name? They didn't like that. These guys settled issues with fistfights. Grandpa was in fistfights at 70 in bars. I mean, these guys were tough guys. Richard. Yeah. So he, yeah. So he gets dropped after a year, and he's Johnny Cougar, and he's working for the telephone company. He is not happy. So he gets a new record deal. He's got a kid. He's yep. married. He's yep. about 21 years old, maybe. Maybe so younger. 19. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, 21. And he... He gets a new record deal, and it's on Riva. The way it went is that, I know we're getting away from the, the, the story, but this is a great story. Yeah. He gets, he calls up everybody, he can't do it. He, I cannot work for the telephone company. Calls up people in radio, and they get him a showcase at Schaumburg, outside of um, uh, Chicago. Yeah. With, yeah. Uh, Schaumburg, Illinois. Yeah. And it was beginnings. It was, uh, the drum, you know, what's his name? Uh, drummer from Chicago's club. Uh, Danny Serafin. And he goes up there, and John thinks it's only him. It's not. It's like five bands. So John's livid and pissed. And there's a guy, Billy Gaff, who manages Rod Stewart, sent his left right-hand guy, left-hand guy, right-hand guy, whatever, <laughs> to go check out another artist. And he's drunk, and he's watching John just go for it. John's good. The songs are okay, but he's a star. This guy's looking at him going... Hey, Billy, the other guy sucks, but I think I got somebody for you. Wow. It was John. He brings him to England. And John gets signed by Billy Gaff, which was the manager. You're going to love this. Management, record label, and John used Billy Gaff's lawyer to negotiate their deal. Wow. <laughs> A little conflict of interest. Yeah. And so he gets the deal. And every time you wanted to get Rod Stewart, you had to take John Mellencamp. So he got John or Genius. John Cougar, on all these TV shows. We did the first American uh, bandstand with Dick Clark. and Anyway, so I auditioned. At his house, Lake Monroe. Yeah, we, i never forget. I, I thought, well, they play in big plays. you got to play hard. I already was a really hard player. I remember John's eyes were bugged out. Only time I ever saw him that ever surprised him. And after two songs, he goes upstairs. And I'm packing up and going, oh, I love this. The loud, you know, Les Paul through Marshalls, Strat through a Fender. I mean, it was just rock and roll. It was like, oh, this is, there's no question. I'm right back to when I was a kid. This is what I'm supposed to be yeah, doing. Yeah, because that music, it's like garage rock. It's great. Cool. It's yeah. Cool. And so 
I'm packing out. I said, I really, I got to have this. All of a sudden, John goes, Mike, get up here. Mike goes up. I'm like, God damn, this guy's vicious. Mike comes down 10 minutes, smiles at me, shakes my hand and goes, welcome to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm excited, but what do you mean by hell? Yes. Which I found out. Yes. And um, anyway, that's how I got the gig. I'm ecstatic. And in five weeks, we're going to come out here and record at uh, Cherokee Studios yep. on Fairfax. Nothing matters and what if it yes, did. Yes, nothing matters and what if it did. And it was with uh, Steve Cropper, which is an interesting choice. To but produce. He, yeah, and he's a, a radio guy, but he's an R&B guy. He's, for the people who don't know him, he, he wrote Sitting on the Dock by the Bay. Yeah. You know, the, he's uh, in the Blues Brothers movies, yeah. all kinds of cool stuff. So, But he understands songs and radio. And uh, I was saying to Chateau Marmont, I tell everybody. They put you up at Chateau Marmont? Yeah, wow. that's back in the day. There was money everywhere. You know, by the way, there was money because, you know, I mean, I'm on three albums that sold 40 million, but the record labels are making 82 cents on the dollar. That's 82 cents times 140 million. Do the math. With that kind of money, you can invest in bands to make records. Could take nine months. Yeah. You can invest. By the way, the bands owe it back, but at their inter at their royalty rate, which is 15 or 18 percent. But the point is. They had money to invest in getting bands in the studio, invest in getting them on the radio, invest in getting them on the road, invest oh, yeah. in publicists, they invest in marketing. They the go button on you. It's, it's all money. That's all it takes. Like any business takes money. Did you guys do some recording of that on at Criteria as well? For next. The, uh, okay, the That's next record? Next. So, so you're out here at Cherokee, which it, Joe Ciccarelli, do you know who Joe Ciccarelli yeah. is? He's got his studio here at Sunset Sound, and he, was, yeah. he became big at Cherokee, yeah, so he would have exactly. been around at those times. So... In two days, I'm fired. Yes. And I'm like, oh, it's the same room I was in when Jack and Diane went to number one. I am devastated. I can see it coming. I got the call to come down to this room. And I know, fuck, this does not feel good. Get there. And John said, you're not playing on the record. You can go home at the end of the week. And the words that came out of my mouth were life-changing. Yes. And uh, instead of a fight or flight, you know that saying, fight or flight? I'm a fight or fight guy. When I want something... See, when John said, you're going home, you're not making this record, he was stealing. I didn't know this at the time, but this is what it was. He was stealing my purpose. He was stealing what, this is what I do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I have to do. I have to do. So I felt like a loser. I felt like a piece of shit. felt like any neg every negative thing you could think. And when John said that, I said, no fucking way am I going home. And the band was like, wow, what's going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> Someone stood up to John. Yeah. Exactly. Did you hear? So then I go, and I keep going. I go, well, am I still your drummer or what? And he looks at me kind of perplexed, and he goes, uh, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. Because you weren't busy. You were still green, and you didn't know, understand recording studio timelines, yes. the, the quickness of having to, exactly. you know, they were trying to get this done. Yeah. That's exactly it. <clears throat> I, I didn't know. I asked drummers all the time this, or any session. What's the purpose of you? What is your purpose playing on this record? Go, oh, drummer, go, time, be. I mean, no, stupid. Get the fucking song on the radio to be a number one hit. So if that means pick your nose with your knuckle, <laughs> you do that. Yeah. If that means you don't play drums and somebody else does, whatever it takes. It's not about you. It's about the song, the band, the artist. That was the lesson. 
And I didn't know nothing about that. Because in order to be great at anything, it's all about you. Me, me, how do I sound? How do I look? To be Tom Brady, it's about the team. Yeah. It's about what can I do to get those people to play so good and I play so good that we win a Super Bowl. That is what I learned. Didn't even know that I was learning it then, but that's what I was learning. So, And I admire that so much about you because also it's a great lesson like we were talking about. You get this amazing education in the meantime because you don't leave and you stick around and kind of just eavesdrop on the session and learn. Because oh, yeah. they brought in the, the Van Morrison drummer. What's his name? We had Ed Green and Rick Schlosser. Yeah, Rick, Rick Schlosser, who did a great and, work uh, with And you Van know what? Morrison. Rick reached out to me about 10 years ago. He lives in <laughs> Mexico. Sweet guy. He says, I knew you were going to make it. He says, how the hell do you know, would you know? He says, you were asking the right questions, and your attitude was so spot on, and you were hanging around. And These guys were really helpful. They were really nice. And it was humbling. I was embarrassed. I felt like a loser. Of course. You know, because I was hanging out. I did get to play vibes and percussion, but I was at that point in my life where I was, I was insecure about, uh, you know, I needed validation. Now, I, I don't look for validation from anybody. Now I've pivoted the whole thing around where you give yourself validation. Don't look for it from anybody. You be the coach. You be the player. Don't look at it from anybody. Just yeah. You know if you did a good job. And if you didn't do as good a job as you hoped, you, you learn from that. And I don't believe there's mistakes, and I don't believe there's failures. They're just events that help you get better. Yeah. That's being human. We're not robots. Yeah. So I didn't know any of this stuff. So I was like all tripping out and freaking... Life's it, over. Yeah. <laughs> you stood up. You're like, I'm not going anywhere. Dude, so where did that come from? I mean, yeah. I'm just so lucky it was in me. <laughs> so I, uh, I go home, and I realize now i got to learn to be the greatest drummer I can be for John Mellencamp's songs, John Mellencamp for this band. i got to please the producer, engineer, the record label, everybody. And that's when I started to pivot the whole thing around. And that... You know, I said I'll make, I vow to make the next record, and the next record was two years later. American, American Fool. Fool won two Grammy. Uh, gram oh yeah, Grammys. it's it's massive. So you guys tour on um, the record. Nothing matters, and what if it did? You toured that record, right? That was yeah. you, or was it Schlosser? He was just only in the. No, he, yeah, he just it, did the recording. Yeah, as a matter of fact, John said to Steve Cropper, "I don't want to fire Kenny because when the record's over, I, he's still my drummer. I need him." Yeah. And that's I did. I, I did. John said, I'll give you a chance. And then we started by opening up for the Kinks. Wow. First live show. That's an amazing story. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But 1981, American Fool, you guys go down to Miami to record it at Criteria mm -hmm. Studios, which is a uh, hit factory now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so many great records. I know. Um, this album completely blows up. You guys win two Grammys. Yeah. And you got Hurt So Good. Jack and Diane on this record. I mean, two of the biggest songs ever. And if you go to any bar in Bloomington, it's playing 17 times It's, it's the all hour. the time you go into Trader Joe's out here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cha-ching. <laughs> yeah, I made, as I tell you, but I made the corporation, John Mellencamp, millions of dollars because Jack and Diane was not even on the record. We didn't wow. know what to do with it. We were young. It was just a little ditty. Jack and Diane, I'm playing acrostic, you know, and so the song's not on the record. I walk in one day, and Don Gaiman's got this metal box. I went, hey, Don, what's that? Did the label put Don Gaiman with John? That's what I wanted to ask you, because he I don't, was... I don't, I don't know how Don got the gig. But I, he was that first production, or 
producer credit he did and worked with you guys was on American Fool. You know what I'm thinking? Uh, maybe you know. Did John do any recording down there? I think he did because on the John Cougar record, he's got a song called My Living in Miami, and they have him out on jet skis out there. He did something in Miami, and I think Don Gaiman might have been recording. Maybe he, he was down there because he worked with the Bee Gees and yeah, yeah. all those people down there. Maybe John ran into him, or maybe they got paired up. But this is the first time Don is a producer. Was he, real quick, John, you know, his songs are just amazing. They're so nostalgic of America yeah. and Midwest and hardworking citizens, which I just adore. Yeah. Was he writing all these songs, though? I mean, here's, here, here's did the he writing have a co-writing? Here's the writing process. Here John would write... John would write the songs, but he had George Green. Do you remember George mm -hmm. Green? Did you ever meet him? Yeah. Yeah, so George Green, sadly, who's left us, George was a great, uh, he was like a book writer. So he came up with like lines like, hurt so good, come on, baby, make it. He came up with cool, like, minutes to memories, which is like unbelievable lyrics. And George wrote that. So John was, George was kind of like a Bernie Taupin to Elton John. Yeah, yeah. mentor. And so, and so, yeah. And but John would get all the writing credit most of the time. There may have been a George Green there, but and but but the band had to come up with all the arrangements. And I remember John walking in after American Fool, getting ready to do our high. He says, "Hey, listen, you fuckers, I write the same songs all the time." And I'm thinking, yeah, no kidding. And he says, I need you guys to come up with innovation and creativity, ideas <laughs> to make these songs hits that get on the radio. And Kenny, if somebody can play a better beat than what you're playing, you play it. And all you guys, you don't own your instruments. We all play each other's instruments. It's a band. Whatever gets these songs on the radio to be hits. And he walked out of the room and I went, what a fucking jerk. But he was right. <laughs> yeah. Back then, I was like, fuck you. But n now I look back and go, God damn. I mean, his delivery sucked. But his ideas were right. He was like a coach, you know, like a Bobby Knight. Yeah. You know, he was a tough, if you guys don't know, Bobby Knight was one of the toughest basketball coaches ever. He used to throw chairs and strangle his, play his, his players. <laughs> but he won all of his titles. Oh, yeah, he crushed. He reinvented. Ba if you see the movie Hoosiers with... Uh, with what's his name? Gene Hackman. Yeah. That was Bobby Knight. So anyway, so John was right. And um, we would have to come up with, and you have to think about this. You know, let's go back to Jack and Diane. When I walk in and Don Gaiman's got this box. I said, Don, what's that? I said, it's the Lin One drum machine. I went, drum machine? Drum machine? Those replace drummers. I'm like, I got replaced by two humans. <laughs> now, I thought, am I the horse and buggy? And the car just showed up, you yeah. know, replaced. Fight or fight. I grabbed the box and went, well, I'm fucking programming it. I want to be part of it. Adapt or die, remember? Adapt or die. There's no way. I didn't go, oh. I went, grabbed the machine, got the manual, programmed what I was playing on the drums, it had eight outputs, and they thought they'd bring the eight outputs up on eight, you know, things on the board. And, uh, but I'm sitting in the control, no, in the lounge going, what the heck? Am I, be is this it? See, Don heard, John heard the Bee Gees using it next door. And that type of device is perfect for dance music. Yeah. Well, Prince in the room right over here. I mean, he. Uh, Who does? Prince. Oh, yeah. I See, mean, it makes sense. The drum was everything. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. 
John calls me in two hours later and goes, Aaron, we need a, a drum solo right there. And I'm thinking, on a ballad? I'm, f I'm excited, but I'm freaking. I'm like, oh, my God, i got to save the song to save my career. Because I'll get fired. I got fired before. So thank God they spent all day getting drum sounds. Back in those days, they put drums in vocal booths. Now John wanted to put the drums in the big room, and nobody knew how to mic it. They, you know, you had your close mics and your overheads, but where do you put the room mics? Because there's a delay between mics, and they were experimenting all day. And then what kind of compression, and which mics do you compress, and what kind of EQ? And it was this huge experiment. All I kept thinking was, serve the song. Let's get this on the radio and get it so it, it sounds great through little car stereo speakers and <laughs> little TV speakers. I mean, I was already had learned the end game. And I'm like, oh my God, finally it's my turn to come in. I'm like, oh shit, I'm scared. Doosh, 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 Boom, blam! Kick drum, snare them, and I stopped. And I look in the control room, there's nine people going. I'm like, and you know what I thought? Still got my job. Still got my job. I'm here. Anyway, I hit a dead end. I go into the control room. You got, I'm, I'm, I'm scared now. Cortisol levels are up. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Not again. I'm, I'm traumatized. So half the band's telling me what to do. Half the band's telling me what not to do. My head's spinning. I went, you're on your own, buddy. This is a World Series. You're up to bat. Strike out. Team goes home. Hit a home run. You're a hero. So I start heading to the drums. I'm like 40 feet away. I'm like, what are you going to play, dude? I'm 30 feet. I have no idea. 20 feet. What are you going to do? Dude, you're going to lose your job again. 10 feet. I don't know. I get to the drums. I look at them. I look at them. I look at the drums. I'm like, and all of a sudden a light went off in my head. I went, all right, you can't just start from scratch. Why don't you take what you were doing, but just do it differently or adjust it? At least you got something to work with. It's almost like if you had a room full of furniture and you don't like it, you got two choices. Get rid of the furniture, buy new stuff, or just rearrange it. I rearranged it. And long and short of it, I came up with that drum fill, and it was... Uh, well, how's it go? Oh, should we play it real quick? Or, I mean, I, it's the most identifiable yeah. I mean, drum fill ever, but do it real quick for us. Boom, blam! Boom, the got going, boom, let it rock, <laughs> so let it roll. And it was, it was, what's his name, from Bowie's band that came up with, tell Kenny to keep playing a beat and sing the chorus over it. I'm spacing his name, uh, the coolest dude in the world. Um, I'll think about it. It was, it was David Bowie's guitar player, and he, he, he's the one that came up with it, an English guy. And that's where, long and short of it, I came up with this beat, and they sang a lot. And Did so, they okay. all say, think that was a, like fire right there? Like, oh, that's cool. They, they thought it was cool. Okay. John was excited. But we didn't, it got on the record. That's all we knew. It made yeah. it to the record. So they re back in the day, as you all know, the way they test market to see what's going to be a single is they play all the songs on album-oriented radio format and people call and say oh we like this one oh we like this one hurt so good tested real well and by the way when we were recording hurt so good they brought in the vice president of polygram and he didn't get it he went wow this john i don't get this you should be more like neil diamond john <laughs> walked him to the door and kicked him in the ass uh -huh. onto the 
So we lost our record deal, but we wow. got it back. I didn't know After this. After Heard so, so Good came out. They did. They, it tested well. John got the record deal back, and it went to number two. The thing that kept us from number one was Eye of the Tiger, because Rocky had just come out. Yep. So I talked to a record A&R guy recently and said, come on. John, the Polygram could have laid a million dollars on the table and got this thing number one. So very true, but it was the Scotty brothers that was behind <laughs> I the Tiger, which is basically the mafia. So they probably went, well, we'll, let, this, we'll let this one go. <laughs> but anyway, so they start, Hurts of Good goes from number two starts to slide a little bit and immediately testing the next song. And the song that tested great, that people kept asking about was Jack and Diane. They release it. Goes to number one. Hurts so good stays in the top ten. We've got two songs in the top ten. Wow. Suddenly, like, who the hell is this Johnny Cougar guy? And who's playing drums on Jack and Diane? Had he switched to Mellencamp by that point, the name? Or was he still? Uh, American Fool, it was um, John Mellencamp, right? Cougar still. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. The next album, now John's like, fuck this. John Cougar, Mellencamp, and then Scarecrow. John Mellencamp. Yeah. And from a marketing standpoint, it got confusing. You go into Tower Records, do you go to the M's or do you go to the C's? Yeah. And it really was a little bit frustrating for the label. They didn't know. And John says, well, just put a picture of me and as you walk in. <laughs> just. <laughs> that's what he wanted. Did you feel, how did the success affect you? Um, you know, people react to success differently whether you're the front person or the drummer, I mean, you're doing completely giant gigs at this point. You guys are everywhere. You're doing television appearances. What did you think personally, like, holy shit, this is awesome? Or or did you have self-doubt where they're going to like, oh, my God, they're going to find out. They're going to find out about it. Uh, at first it was when Jack and Diane went to number one, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not number one. They're going to find out. I'm really not that good. Uh, and then it became, it was great. I became kind of like the Keith Richards in the band, kind of like, you know, it was like John and this is crazy, energetic, powerful drummer guy. Plus, you know, uh, sorry to cut you off, but during that song and the drum solo we were just talking about, that's such, I mean, if you've ever been to a John Mellencamp concert, the whole crowd yeah. is air drumming to that thing. Yeah. But that was so cool for you, obviously, to Dude, have a number one song in the world, which was, was gigantic at the time, and you have such an integral part of it. I know. And the, and the audience, okay, I turned down an Elton John tour years later. and um, What record? I did four songs with Don Was at Ocean Way for a box set. Elton, like me, wanted oh, okay. to be on tour. So we're playing it at the, uh, not the Staples Center, but uh, one of the big... Forum? Uh, the Forum. Yeah. We're at the Forum. And um, sold out. 360. We didn't have opening acts. We didn't need them. We had so many hits. No opening act. Uh, three-hour show with an intermission, 15-minute intermission, and uh, kids were standing up dancing before the show. We had dancing, you know, rock and roll. Everyone's drunk. Girls would throw bras, underwear at us. And we weren't Motley Crue, but we were, we were right there. creeping in there. <laughs> so Bernie Taupin comes. I'm, I'm backstage, backstage, getting close to walk through, out to the, you know, where you know the, you know the arena, you know, and um, Bernie goes. I can't believe you turned down Elton John. I went, me either. <laughs> I said, this is one of the craziest things I've ever done. I said, but Bernie, come here. I pointed out there. I said, see all these crazy people? Yeah. They all know who I am. It's like I'm not a, a side guy here. I recorded 98% of these songs tonight. Yep. And every time 
I get to the Jack and Hyenfeld. This place is aerodroming, not to something I'm copying. There were, it's like I belong to this. Yeah. And I wasn't ready to leave Melkamp. No and way. I said, Bernie, why are you here? To see Melkamp, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So I said, and he says, I get it. But still, that was one of the, and you know, and Elton John, I mean, even John was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did it, you dumbass. But the thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, Elton John's one of the greatest ever. But You, know, you wanted to ride the wave of that. Plus, it's the Indiana back ties. And you knew at that point when John had the two songs in the top ten, one of them number one, that this shit was about to take off. Oh, dude. And it was already it, take, took it, off. Oh, dude. And you're on Saturday Night Live. And then all of a sudden, and then, okay, now John... I was following John's footsteps. He was nervous as shit. He says, we got to do it again. Just because we got, uh, he was, I totally related to him. He thought, God, dude, we can lose our record deal like that. So we, that's why he was giving us the speech afterwards. We need hits. And that's when he wrote Pink Houses and the Authority song and Crumbling Down. As a matter of fact, uh, John decided, I don't want to record in Miami and fuck LA and New York. I want to. Uh, Let's, I want to talk about that, but let's go. I got a comment just for my Indiana yeah. Hoosier people because Hurt's So Good, the video you guys shot, which you're in, literally is one of the greatest MTV music videos ever, which I wish MTV was even close to what they used to be. Yeah. But uh, again, in a small town, uh, Medora. Medora, Indiana, and John's brother's kind of a Hell's Angel, kind cousin, of facilitated his cousin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you guys shoot that video, and that thing was just so. <laughs> cool and cheesy and amazing and um did john come up with that whole concept or did he finance that himself do you remember no i think there were budgets for that but for people who are watching this was a small town i don't even know if it was a stoplight there small redneck town southern indiana we're in a little bar his cousin was like a hell's angels guy great guy uh, the bar's still there too. It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tracy's—he loved me because, but he's the type of guy to just watch you. And I saw him one night. We were in Stockholm, and someone was drunk—a big ass, uh, uh, you know, Swedish guy. Tracy is John's cousin, yeah. but also a giant. He was a bodyguard. He's kind one, of yeah, player. he's one of these guys. You touch his arm, it feels like wood. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, and so I remember somebody fucking with us in, 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 a, in, a, in a really fancy bar. And Tracy said very silent, quietly, said, I think you need to leave. The guy kept fucking him. And dude, Tracy, in like millisecond, popped the guy, broke his nose, blood everywhere. And then we walked out. But that's Tracy. He was like, you don't know, this guy was a street fighter. He knew, and he was classy about it, but you don't fuck with Tracy. Yeah. And, um, but. You don't fuck with John. John's no, fighter, too. Those guys, even Hud, his son is a boxer. Yeah. They've got. Yeah. <laughs> they're, uh, just, they're just Indiana tough guys. But, so that bar, I don't know, I think John, I think it was Bruce Gower was a famous uh, videographer and got in the film, and he put together with John. John wanted the Harleys. He, the thing that was brilliant about John in this, Nobody knew where anything about Indiana in the whole world. Yeah. And now you're showing farmland and and trains in the Midwest. And John and the director, they captured the real essence of Indiana. 
and Small Town, the song Small Town we did, uh, Pink House, all these songs, Scarecrow, when the farming, you know, the family farmer play came out. John did all his videos in Indiana, yeah. and people, it was authentic. And they, Big time. like you said, they cut it and they filmed it right. It was the real shit. John had all these, they didn't have like, they didn't fly people, supermodels in. No, they had the bikers dancing and this stuff, but they didn't, they didn't know how to dance. And they were like, it's so good, you know, <laughs> teeth out and headband, you know. It was like, and they're driving on the motor. We had the chick of chains on the bar dancing. And, you know, the other, and these were just locals. And it was so genuine. But and that, yeah, that's so great. right because and nostalgic that people could really identify with who he was that that way. You know, visually, MTV broke gigantic artists. John had already been big, but the the music was so relatable with the videos. Then totally, because it was right on who he was. Exactly, you nailed it. You put the two together. It was genuine. Music was genuine. Videos were genuine. It was a package. Also, yeah. you know, those records how they were mixed. It's also kind of aggressive if that makes sense but the drums were always brought up a little dude, bit garage band sound uh, dude i lucked out john yeah. wanted you know what john said i want my record to blow the shit out of any record that comes after <laughs> us and i want to crush any record that comes before us and one way you do that is you put the drums way up in the mix what makes people dance drums and then the vocalist everything else john we do sound checks and he walk the whole venue and you wanted the drums so friggin' loud and vocals and everything else was extra. And that's, uh, that, that put me on the map. How did, that, how did John's personality, I mean, anybody that knows and of John Mellencamp, he's a tough guy yeah. in a lot of ways to work with, uh, physicality, a million things. How did his personality kind of change throughout that, you know, from American Fool, uh-huh, was he always kind of the same? He knew this was going to be, he was going to be with the biggest rock star in the world? Or did he, he get he very fear. ego? Okay. He had fear he was going to lose it again. And um, he, it, he had, it's such a struggle to make it. And I think he had self-doubt about himself too. And so he was relentless on everybody around him, screaming at managers, screaming at A&R people, screaming at us, screaming. He was uh, just, he, 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 he started smiling less and less. And became more and more just a pit bull, and he and he felt insecure enough, like he had to beat his last record. But it was a lot of pressure, and he wrote that song on the Big Daddy record when he decided he wanted to take some time off in 1987, our last show at, at Summerfest after the Jubilee. We'd been going eight years straight. I was going eight years straight with him, you wow. know, uh, write songs, arrange songs, record songs, promo for songs. Rehearse for tour, do tour, that's two years. Take a month off and start again. I've done it for eight years. He did it a little bit more than that, and he was fried. We do this Big Daddy record, and one of the songs on the Big Daddy, the only one that wasn't introspective, introspective and quiet, was Pop Singer. And it, you know, it's like, boom, 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 I don't want to be no pop singer. I don't want to be no rock star. And I'm like... That guy's so full of shit. He does. But <laughs> he didn't. I didn't see it coming. He was burnt out. He was like, he felt the pressure. How am I going to beat? I'm, we're flying around in private jets. We're selling out arenas. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Scarecrow Jubilee albums were huge. Well, everywhere. Where's there to go? And I think he felt the pressure. And, and he was starting to get 
So he was, that was, those lyrics were not by accident. I'm done. I'm, I'm fried. I'm beat up. And obviously he didn't stop, but that was a huge change. Sure. Let's talk about Uh Uh-huh real quick, which you guys, is that when you moved into the shack? Yeah. Okay. And the shack was a house, which was John's Sisters. sister's. In uh, outside of Bloomington, Brown County area. No, Brown or Nashville, Indiana. Brownstown. Brownstown. Near yeah, Medora. Yeah. Yes. Like we're talking on a pig farm. <laughs> and you guys brought in the mobile truck from uh, Criteria. Criteria. Yeah. Just because he wanted to record at home then, or he okay, could, yeah, that or? was. A, John said, "I don't want to go record anywhere else. I want to record." So he thought instead of building a studio, he'd try it with a mobile unit. I think it was Don Gaiman who gave him that idea and took over his sister's. This was like. I mean, this was like <laughs> a shack, a shack, maybe fifteen hundred square feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was pigs and goats, and you know, <laughs> we just took this house, just rewired it, and it was just drywall everywhere, and we recorded those songs in there. And I'll never forget we did. So now we knew, and we brought in uh, one's name, the bass player from Brothers Johnson, who'd played on mm-hmm. Beat It. You know. Oh, uh, really? You know, Lewis Johnson. Gotcha. He was this great, you know, and he he came up with a line on, on uh, uh, maybe the Authority song. I don't know, whatever. So, but he was great. And he'd bring in people. But basically, the bottom line is, we get the record done, and now we know we can do records in Indiana. Okay, so the rec- uh-huh is done. John calls me up. I'm in Bloomington. He said, what are you doing, Aaron? I'll some practice. You're living there, too, obviously. So it's great because all the band members are from Indiana. Yeah, we all, all live in Bloomington, around. renting houses. Yeah. Um, and so John says, uh, I wrote a song. It's going to be the first single. I went, well, the record's done. Uh-huh's done. It's been mixed master. He says, no, no, no. See, he was still paranoid that he didn't have enough singles. So he kept writing, and George Green and him, I think, was involved. He writes a song called Crumbling Down. He says, I'll be there in 20 minutes, and I'm crapping in my pants because I'm like, oh, my God, i got to save the song. And it was right there I figured out a way to deal with my nerves with regard to when you're feeling that pressure. You could be, whether you're on a, in sports or music or a corporate meeting, you know, when you know the question's coming to you. So here's what I came up with. All right, when he plays me this song, I'm just going to think of the most obvious beat. And then I'll embellish it a little bit. So it'll be two beats now. And I'll embellish it more, get a little more outside. Finally, I'm just going to come up with something completely out of the box. So every time he'd play a song, after Jack and Diane, by the way, every time he'd write a song, acoustic guitar, he'd play it for you twice on acoustic guitar. He'd go, what do you got, Aronoff? <laughs> what pressure? You, you'd have to come up with stuff that doesn't even sound like that song, but it has to be simple and like a Charlie Watts or a Ringo Starr thing that was clever. That's really difficult. It's did not obvious. Understand, did John understand music, though? I mean, was he kind of just C-D-A-G? He had, that's kind of like... No, he, he, he under... Here's what... It's a great question. He understood what wasn't good. Okay. But and he had the demand. He, he was searching for greatness, but he knew what was cool but he couldn't come up with it all the time. That's why he depended on us. Yeah. Like on whatever we wanted, uh, love and happiness. The original beat was, well, they're dropping those bombs on the hemis. It was like a campfire song. I'm like, 
There's no way I'm going to do that. And what I did to come up with that was I thought out of the box. I'm, we spent two days on which is rare. Usually, John only take two hours. If it's not happening, fuck it. Wow. So we keep trying it, and I, I, I said, all right, forget it. I'm going to think, well, let's see. What, what, what would Peter Gabriel's drummer do? <laughs> In the eyes. Awesome. John went, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, whoa. Give it to those toms. I like that thing on the snare drum. And see, that's where John he becomes the director. He'll sit there and go like, okay, I like that. What's that pedal there? So well, it's a double bass drum pedal. Use it. Are you serious on your record? He made me do it. And he just was that way. He knew how to direct. And get shit out of people. Did he clash with the producers a lot? Yeah, I bet, dude. Like when they go, like, I think it was it was on it was on uh, uh, um, it was on Paper and Fire. Mm -hmm. He goes, they go like, dude, um, that's not gonna work. And you say to John, it's not gonna work. It's full on, one million on red, and. <laughs> Who was playing, so Lisa Germano later, and there's a picture later who's from Mishawaka, Indiana, by me, but who was playing uh, fiddle and violin on the those early records that you worked on? Would they bring people in? No, she, she's one. I brought her in because we were doing, I mean, in, in the Aha record. She my, started that early on the Aha uh -huh Yeah. Record. Okay. Jo what it was, well, not on the Aha record, but uh, after Aha was Scarecrow, and John did this thing with his grandma, and he wanted a violin, and I said, well, I know a violin because I was doing this country gig uh, you know, was, we were off tour, and my son had just been born. And I filled in for somebody, but that's where I learned how to do the number system. It was literally called the the Little Nashville Opry, and they would bring literally. It was hardcore country. It was like the Opry in 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 Nashville, Tennessee, yeah. and they would bring. It was like a 15-piece band with fiddle, pedal steel, and I learned the number system and how to write charts the way they do it in Nashville. It taught me how to play country music. So eventually, when I became a session drummer. My skill set was already. I understood country music, every you know everything that was going on down there. You guys and I brought her in. She was in that band. Oh wow! I brought her in, and John immediately liked her. Fascinating player, person. Um, yeah, interesting. Shout out right? Lisa Germano. Yes, um, a fun. So Belmont Mall Studio. When does that come into play? When did you guys first record? All right. That? So after the uh, who owns Belmont Mall? What? Who owns Belmont Mall? John. John owns the whole thing. No partners. Yes. He's $75,000 on a little house. Yes. Everybody. In Indi well, not anymore. Bloomington, I hear the prices have jacked up because that's the place to live. Number one business school now, too. Yeah. So um, after Uh-huh proved to be a very successful record and we made it at home, John went, okay, now... I will build a studio. So he takes over this house in Belmont, adds a studio on the back of it, modeled after a studio out here called Rumbo. Yes. And Greg uh, Edwards, who was an engineer, sadly isn't with us anymore, he uh, helped design it with uh, Don Gaiman. And they basically, you know, it was a very interesting room. Not very l good with low end in the room. At Belmont? Yeah. At Rumbo. yeah okay. And if you're sitting in the back, in the in the control room with the couches, it was, the room wasn't tuned great, so you had a lot of low end back in the chair where John would be sitting on the couch from the control room. So it was a lot of bass, but it wasn't showing up on tape. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of bass in the room, but you thought you had a lot of bass where you were sitting. And so we had to then start mixing records and go in the car and put our CDs in our cassettes <laughs> to hear, oh, wow, it's not enough bass. And then they would 
add more. Well, that room, uh, fun fact is we have a Neve 8088 here in Studio 2 at Sunset Sound, but that board came from Rumbo, which Appetite for Destruction was cut on that board here in the room we're sitting. But the room at John's Belmont Mall Studio is is kind of influenced off the Rumbo room. Is that correct? Totally. Yeah. The design, the, the physicality of it. But we have a Trident A-range, and I, I, I assume that's what was well, in Well, that's Rumbo. another great story that, about this room, because we had a Sound Techniques console here mm. back in 65 to 74. There's another great video up on Sound Techniques if you want to Frank Zappa, The Stones. I mean, so many records were done on those boards. Zeppelin 2 and 4 worked on in this room on that Sound Techniques, but they all thought that was the Trident A-Range. It was actually a Sound Techniques A-Range, uh, and they kind of, oh. that company tried to confuse people a little bit. Um, wow. But yeah, that's such a fun fact about that. Uh, I know. Boards, you know, there was, it was at that studio, then it went to Canon, and we got it. Um, I got to also go back to Lisa. Check it out. It's such a great track between you two. I mean, I fuck, that's probably my favorite Melon Dude, that song. is such a, that, oh my Beautiful. God. And the words, lyrically, what yeah. it means, um, yeah, that, no. that solo she has, plus your intro and the drum off of it. I mean, yeah, but it gets deeper. I played Hammer Dulcimer. Oh, he did. See, so John, this is John Mellencamp. We're about to do Scarecrow. John comes in one day and says, first thing he did, he was doing more and more business, comes in with a, a, like a shitload of albums, LPs, from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Throws them at us. I want you guys to learn the hits on these songs and tell me what made them hits. So I started writing out beats to like songs we grew up with. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't realize the drummer was doing that. Why would he do that? So I created this thing called The Book of Beats. So when John would like come in and play a song, I'd go, oh, I'll try that beat. <laughs> and it would be something like Hal Blaine played, you know, with yeah. Nancy Sinatra or the, you know, whatever. Right. It was just different. Because rock and roll was different back then. Anyway. That was one thing. The other thing John said was, all right, you guys, was it that album? I think it was Scarecrow or Jubilee. No, it was Jubilee. The album after Scarecrow, he goes, I want you guys to all learn instruments that you don't know how to play. <laughs> Everybody has to learn a new instrument. Kenny, you can't do vibes. You already did it. So I learned, I got this <laughs> hammer dulcimer. <laughs> so I got this hammer dulcimer that was like 90-something strings or something. Uh, and... That's why I came up. Do 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 do, and they had it mixed up real high. But I think they thought it was a little too Appalachian. So it was me, violin, and maybe accordion playing that line. You, if you hear, you'll see I'm mixed underneath. You know, do do cut cut, do do cut cut, and I played all the way through it, and then you know I overdubbed. Maybe have a better understanding. What and a that, that break. Song. Uh, yeah. Blah. Blah. Do, 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 blah. Blah. That's what John. See, John, it's really difficult to come up with something that's creative and simple. Dude, Justice Independence, which has got this big drum break. It's named after Justice Smelling yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. John will go, give me a drum solo right now. <laughs> what? Right in the middle, like, and that was kind of like a. It was like like it was like a, it was like a march of jazz thing. Then I turned into Gene Krupa. Then you had a trumpet to it. Like what? 
in the middle of uh, a rock album, he just was always pushing and trying to do things that most people would say is wrong and impossible. And not every time it worked, but when it did, people would go like, guy's creative. I mean, he's got incredible ideas. Quick question. Did you ever see him take a sip of liquor? Yeah, like this. And obviously no weed or anything. I mean, he never No weed, no drugs. John, which is good to have a leader like that, but John was so jacked up on cigarettes and coffee, his doctor said, you need to drink a little red wine just to chill you out. And he said, I hate it. He'd hold his nose. Isn't that weird? Yeah. No drugs. I know. We were drinking and partying, but not him. He, I, th- I've, I know that about him, but I just wondered in the early days, in the you know the eighties, if he ever did anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so you and John record together up until the self-titled album, John Mellencamp, and then Dane Clark joins the band. What happened with you and John's relationship uh, before that record? Okay, what I know hap- he had said that he was kind of quitting. Well, what happened? He quit at, at the last show. After we'd sold out all these arenas, you know, the Jubilee Tour, and he hands me a bonus check back when they used to get bonus checks. He'd say, hey, fucker, don't spend this in one place. I'm quitting for three years. Now, the way he said it was believable. If I'd been smarter, I would have gone, there's no way he's going to quit for three years. But he decided, he, the bottom line, and now I understand, he was burnt out. Yeah. You know, I just played drums and pick up chicks or whatever. But the thing is, he was running this business 24-7, so it wasn't fun anymore. Plus family life had came into the picture then, divorces. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was all the above. So I had just gotten divorced, and I had child support and house and payments and all this shit. So I'm like, wow, he's quitting? I've been working with this guy for eight years, and if he quits, I'm out of a job. So the next day I woke up, I went, you know what? Fight or fight again. I went, I can't be dependent on one guy anymore. So instead of working with one rock star, now I'm going to work with all the others. So I started coming out here more and more. I was already doing sessions, but I was on the phone nonstop. And back in the day, you know, L.A. was like a beehive. You'd go to all the clubs and there'd be A&R people, managers there, lawyers there, bands looking for deals. And they were deals were getting made. I'll sign that band. I'll sign that band. I mean, I was in the dressing room with no doubt and they were playing at Club Lingerie. And I thought, that's interesting. Ska band. No one will sign them. That's such a cool club. Uh, yeah. El Bar right here. On yeah. Sunset. Actually. Sunset. Yeah, yeah. But the point is. Nobody will sign them. <laughs> I suddenly hook up with Don Was. Yes. And now I'm making Elton John, you know, uh, Bob Dylan, Iggy Pop, uh, uh, Bob Seger, who I eventually went on tour with. I could have gone on with Elton John. All of a sudden, my world changed. And so... Um, it's a blessing I'm, in disguise in some area a little bit. Oh, it's totally a blessing. It was, you're it, doing my, diversity now with your drumming and the music you're playing. Yeah. You I, have diversity. Diversity yeah. and uh, two different careers now. So when I come back in the band in 1991... Are you living in Bloomington then and flying out here for sessions at Sunset, Cherokee, wherever? Yeah, because the budgets were so big, I had drums in Nashville, New York, L.A., Indiana, of course, Germany eventually, and Japan. And people would fly me all over the world, and uh, first class, you know, everything was on the... And then when when I'll never forget being at... It was right about when the Michelle Branch record was happening. I realized I'd show up Instead of everybody building on the drums, I was the last thing. Because it's cheaper for John Shanks to program everything or these producers do all their shit in their, in their small home studios or their smaller studios. 
And then when it's time to put drums, you go into the big room, like this room was where I did Michelle Branch, her first album, that song Everywhere. It was here you overdubbed the drums to existing tracks, which made it very complicated. Sonically, I had to figure out the regular drums and setup wasn't working suddenly. And all of a sudden I had to go, if somebody wasn't in, in time and they were keeping it, I would have to adapt to where they were. So it was a whole new world was changing. But the bottom line is I w had created this other career when I got back with John. John... Uh, Did I, he I, resent that? He resented it a little Big bit. Time. Mostly because he said to me once, as he, I mean, we were younger. What were you supposed to do? Sit around and wait for him? Yeah. Well, see, eventually I took myself off the retainer. It wasn't very much money. I could make more in one day on a session than my whole month retainer in net dollars. So I took myself off retainer, which if I were him, I would have gone like, whoa, that's a Kenny signaling. Like, you know, what does that mean? And if I were John, an, a one, a, if you really thought he needed me for, for whatever reason, he'd say, okay, dude, we need to have a talk. What's going on here? But that's not John. He's not that guy. So... I took myself, and sure enough, I'm uh, doing like a Hank Jr. record down there, and John said, I need you uh, tomorrow. I said, I can't. I'm in the middle of a Hank Jr. Ooh, we just got to tell these people. pissed him off so oh, bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll never forget. I was doing Little Feet. That's um, Hank Jr. Was, came later. I'm little doing, Feet in this room? No, it was out in uh, Henson B. with this girl, Sana Solomonson from Denmark. The drummer for Little Feet, Richie Haywards, with Eric Clapton. So they need a drummer. And they're, and, and, and they're the backup band for this girl. And so they hire me. I get a call. I'm on the phone. John says, listen. Listen, fucker. You got to just, when you can do these gigs, I don't care what session you do. But when I call you, you got to come. I said, John, but people, producers build albums around rhythm sections. They want this, the band, the artists that go like, we, need, we want that guy. And it makes a difference. So when I commit, I have to commit. And he you hung up start on me. Tracking. I, he hung up on he, you. He hung up on you. You I couldn't wait a couple weeks, though, to start tracking? You wait, you've been with him for eight years. He's not John. Now you're two years off. He yeah. calls you. Three years off. Yeah, but you couldn't be like, I, I can be available in three or four weeks. But or how about, how about next week? Yeah. But he was not like that. He, it was an ego thing. He just... No, you, you, it's my way, and that's the only way. So that so, was the end of it. No, we just somehow we stayed in. He, he brought, there was one time I'm auditioning for Tom Petty. Stan Lynch is out of Tom Petty's band. Tom, uh, and Stan calls me up. Yo, Kenny, uh, your boss called me up. He wants me to play some tracks on his record. Should I, UPS or FedEx? My drums I said, what's more expensive? FedEx. I said, FedEx them. <laughs> and so, but that was the end of you and John then, right? When not he hung yet. Up We're okay. still right, in right, and right. out. Stan told me, but it was funny that both of us were playing for each other's bosses. Wow. Stan goes, they go, hey, Stan, can you tune your snare drum up? And then finally he goes, do you want me to shave my head too? <laughs> you know what I mean? Stan's great. I'll never forget, I was hanging out with Don Henley at his place in Malibu and Stan, and, and they're going to compose, they're going to write, those guys, the Lyric Kings, are going to write a letter for me to send to John. <laughs> I wish I had a copy of it. I don't awesome. know whatever happened to him, but it was something like, they were like, then we went out and got drunk, but you know, we, we were like, 
they were coming up with, yeah, you know, and they're very good with lyrics. So it was going to be great. So tell me, how did it not end then? If he All right, so what happened was, he tried these different drummers, and then I'd come back, and you know, uh, you know, and uh, sort of. But there was a lot of tension, and finally, I'm on. I asked John, "Listen, I got to ask. I got asked to do a six and a half month tour with Bob Seger. Are you cool?" He says, "Yeah, that's all right. I mean, as long as you can give me, we got one more week. He was really being cool. One more week to finish a record. So, uh, and it worked out." with the Bob Seger schedule. But while at the end of the Bob Seger uh, tour, I mean, I was getting paid so much more money, like f four times as much. It was so easy. It was, everyone was so pleasant. Uh, I wasn't part of the band, so I didn't get involved with the politics. It was sold out arenas, and it was such a fun experience. And more money, I just thought, what am I doing? And so I get a call to record with somebody uh, I, I do a thing, and, and, and now we're, we're banging heads again. And John just finally said, I've had enough, you know, you know, maybe we should just part ways. And I spent four days I don't know, I, writing a letter and explaining, writing everything down. See, my, it's like getting divorced. I mean, I, I, when there's a struggle, it means you know what you really want to do but you, you're fighting what you think you should do. Yeah. And that comes, goes all the way back to your childhood and guilt and shit. So I was struggling, and I just too, too scared to leave, but I finally, we decided, and John said, you know, you know don't, don't, we won't trash each other. Of course, he did in Rolling Stone. Next interview, he trashed me like, you know, made fun of me, but whatever. doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it, and so, yeah, we parted in 96 yeah, it was a little sad, you know, but I, it was time to move. Yeah. I, it, I was ready. It was time to move before that, but I didn't have the guts to do it. And right. it's hard to walk away when you're like a main guy. Like, you know, everybody can't. I mean, you know, people Big time. all knew me. And the Indiana thing. I mean, you know, people don't understand, like, that band yeah. there was just, it was like the Rolling Stones. It was like know? the Rolling Stones. And everybody in Indiana is so cool about it, you know. Everybody's just friendly. It's no big deal. And we, and it, but, but you also, if you're nice, everyone treats you so nicely. Not better, but just, it was just a cool thing. It was very comfortable. <laughs> I can go on John Mellencamp stories in Bloomington about a million <laughs> things forever. I, yeah. I love uh, Bloomington. It's such a great campus city, though, and just the area around it. When's the last time you talked? And the Buskirk Chumley Theater, uh, yeah. such a great venue. When's I, the last time I you was, talked? I, to I John? gave us. I, I sold out the Buskirk as as an evening with Kenny Aronoff speaking. Oh, really? Because when my book came out, I became. I have a side thing where I'm I'm a, a motivational speaker. So I've been developing. I have a whole show, and it was so cool coming back to Indiana and selling out the Buskirk Chumley. We should do something together there sometime. Um, like put a showcase or a band or a. Let's do it, a, man. A, you know, no, we'll a, do a combination of things. We should because that's most uh, right on Kirkwood. Yeah. Great theater, maybe three, four hundred seats. Like it's right really nice. fall time too. Yeah. It's so pretty. Yeah. But when's the last time you talked to John? I know he gave you. Uh, he contributed to Modern Drummer book or both of them. No, just uh, the autobiography. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I did a bomber inauguration when that was. I performed with him and we talked then. I want and then then I guess after it would be it might have been there. And then there was one. Oh, I know. It was a music cares. It was great. It was music cares honoring Bob Dylan, and he's a 
and I'm going to play with him. I'm the house drummer with Don was, and um, it was really cool. I did a cocktail kit standing up, and, uh, and it was a very, very cool song. And I remember walking up to him. He was with Meg Ryan. He's got a trailer, smoking a cigarette. I walk up to him, and he's looking at me like, you know. <laughs> I went, hey, John, you remember? This is where, you know, I go, hey, John, you remember when you used to tell me I looked like a dork so I had a ponytail? I said, you were right. I was a dork. That was like the most stupid thing. Says, you know, Kenny, the problem is, is that you were just one of six guys that were doing shit like that. Like, dude, you guys were... <laughs> It was all about us sucking. But it was funny, though, so we would laugh. I mean, that. so, yeah, I have not one negative thing. I'm the type of guy that moves on. Sure. I don't have one negative. Uh, when I first left the band, I had nightmares, but now it's like, yeah. Well, it's, again, it's, it's a blessing in disguise because you're one of the most sought-after drummers, definitely one of the most famous drummers ever. I mean, you do the Kennedy Center. Wow. How many times? 13 times or something? No, I did seven. That seven was like, times. Dude, I mean, it's like <laughs> when you got Sting walking in and going. Oh, God. Yeah. Everybody oh, walking every, in. They all go, you know what I heard they do? They go like, well, uh, you know, uh, who, who's playing, who's in the band? And they go, Kenny Aronoff. Says, oh, good, thank God. Because I, I, I'll never forget, I, uh, Don Henley was doing, was doing one, uh, maybe he was honoring, it was some show, I can't remember. And I, I'm on the drum set. It wasn't Kenny Sanders, it was a big one. It was honoring, it was a farewell thing for Kenny Rogers. And I'm with Don, it's like a 15-piece band. It's got Keith Richards, Loretta Lynn. I mean, it's just everybody. And, uh, and um, I'm writing charts and somebody says, Don wants you. And I went, Don was. He's right there. He says, no, Don Henley. I went, oh, <laughs> shit. I get off the thing, and I said, Don, I got to go see Don. Go there, and, I said, and Don's smiling at me. He's, I said, hey, Don. He says, hey, Kenny, how you doing? I says, um, dude, it's so cool you're here. He says, yeah, I owe the guy. Because Kenny Rogers was the one that convinced Don Henley to come to L.A. Wow. And he got him a publishing deal. That then turned the Eagles. But uh, Don, I says, hey, Don, listen. Um. He says, hey, you know, the, the song is uh, it's Desperado's at 83 beats per minute. I went, I do know that, but your piano player starts it. <laughs> I don't come in until. <laughs> and he says, okay, he says, listen, I got you covered. He says, you're the least of my worries. When Don Henley says that, dude, He's that's big because Don's very opinionated. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so cool that whole work ethic, and they know, like a Dave Gold, Lady Gaga, Bruce Springsteen, Sting, Herbie Hancock, whoever, Hancock, whoever it is, and they say, Kenny's there, they go, oh yeah, Kenny's gonna, I don't have to worry. Yeah, I mean he, that's- I don't have to worry. Yep, and that's another reason, I mean, being from the Chicagoland area, I'm a massive Smashing Pumpkins fan. <sighs> I have a Smashing Pumpkins tattoo. You uh, do? Yeah. Which, <laughs> what, what, is it, does it's it say heart. smash? Oh, the yeah, I was actually love them. In Fuck. I moved out to Los Angeles 17 years ago, but I lived in Hollywood, and I would just go get random tattoos. And I was listening to some a Smashing Pumpkins Gish album, I think, which has Gish. the heart on the cover. Cherub Rock. Uh, <laughs> that's on well, that's uh, Siamese, Siamese Dream. Dream yeah. yeah, Jimmy Chamberlain's one of my favorite drummers. Oh ever. man, I mean, he's yeah. just yeah. incredible. He's incredible. But he's very public, and everybody knows he had a problem with heroin yeah. um, at the end of the 90s. So. Billy Corgan uh, fires him after the death of Jonathan Melvoin. Yeah. And he starts working with producer Brad Wood in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Fires Brad Wood and then yeah. comes into this room we're in right now and does the rest of the Adore album, 
which was such a pinnacle album for Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. But Rick Rubin's producing, Matt Chamberlain's out here. Um, and then Jimmy's out of the band, and they're using a drum machine. And, you know, one Behold the Nightmare was done on that piano right there. Yeah. I mean, just the coolest things ever. That's why I love Sunset. But you get involved to tour the Adore record. And... Dude, this I'll tell you the story. So when Jimmy had that uh, unfortunate... Jimmy... By the way, uh, Melvoin, he thought Jimmy had died. They were together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Melvoin, then Jimmy wakes up and Melvoin's gone. So it was a real sad thing. And Billy had to do, you know, just, you know, he had to immediately tell Jimmy you can't be in there because the press was there. So they had to do what they had to do, you know, to make, to to handle that unfortunate situation. So when that happened, somebody had reached out to me and I was on tour with Bob Seeger. I sent, I called up management for the pumpkin and said, look, if you need anybody to fill in, I'll just get the, the, I can at least finish the tour for you guys. Keep making money, honor your dates. So they said, send in your resume. <laughs> and so, okay, I'll, t- I'll follow up with that. And then I didn't hear from them. Two years later, when they're doing the Adore album, I'm at the uh, Sofitel Hotel right there across from the Beverly Center. I get a phone call from Sid Bernstein. Kenny... This is Sid Bernstein. We represent the Smashing Pumpkins. I'm like, <laughs> what? When? What? The record? I, I, they're making a record, right? He says, no, it's not the record. I'm like, oh, shit. He says, well, we're thinking we're going to audition a few drummers for the tour. I'm like, are you kidding? I'm like, oh, God. Okay. He says, all right, are you interested? Yes. When, where, blah, 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 blah. He says, well, I'll get back to you, but it'll probably be in a month. But I need to ask you a question. If you get the gig or you win the audition, can you say yes? I went, well, when is the tour? When's rehearsals? When am I getting paid? <laughs> I can't say yes. I don't know nothing. Yeah. So it was interesting. So I said, Where was well, the audition at? Here? No. So we, I fly. I'm out here doing a record. And I fly all the way to New York. Oh, wow. And I've le- memorized and learned every single Smashing Pumpkins song. I get there. Uh, it's raining. I finally get to the SIR, I think it was, at maybe 10 o'clock at night. And Billy didn't even show up till 1. Darcy's on the phone the whole time. James is, hi, nice to meet you, and goes over there. See, this is exactly what happens to a, a lot of bands that have been just going bow, 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 like what happened to Mellencamp, they burn out. They needed a break, but Melancholy sold eight million copies, double CD, that's 16 million copies, you gotta go back out. So now they make this Adore record, which is a complete departure from anything else. His mom had died, so it was kind of a tribute to her. And, but the band was a little bit fried. Anyway, Billy walks in, just tall and, you know, really friendly. Says, Kenny, Billy Corgan. Takes off his jacket, straps on his guitar. He says, listen, we already know, play, know how to play hard and loud and fast. I want to do something more like Pink Floyd, trippy, Grateful Deadish. I'm like, okay. So he starts doing the textual type stuff, you know, do dee dee do cymbals. I start adding Tom something. You got to get to a beat. <laughs> so dee do 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 ba do do bo do 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 ba do 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 and I'm like finally went, okay, we gotta go and then I started speeding it up and speeding it up and it's like this Billy 
Darcy's looking that way. James is looking that way. And Billy's like right in front of me with his leg extended out. And it's rocking. We get done. And I said, and this is what I think in hindsight got me the gig. I went, uh, is there anything else you want me to do to make it better? And he smiled. And he went, just do more of the same. Did that again. And that was it. And I think wow. I was thinking, I'll probably be on tour with Fogarty. They don't look like they're really into me. <laughs> It was just their way of, yeah, yeah. they're just in their, their own world. Well, they're not like, they're not the type of guy that looks at you like, man, it's great. Would you grow up and all this? There's no talk. So I um, But I Billy just, was cool. I mean, Billy was the leader of the band. He wrote yeah, the songs. Yeah, and Billy, Billy was really controlling nice. Controlling everything. And I was just blown away. I was playing audition with the Pumpkins. I mean, just that alone would have been, fuck. See, you get it. Even before God. working with them, though, there's people that love the Smashing Pumpkins. And you, obviously, you know their fan base, too, which is just Huge. so diehard. And then there's some people that just don't like the pumpkins. Dude, when I saw on MTV, the world is a vampire. I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? It resonated with me. So both I'm the butterfly at, wings. I'm, yeah, both about. So I'm in the uh, LaGuardia airport, and I get a phone call from Sid. He says, Kenny, Billy would like you to do this, the Adore tour. I'm like... One of the greatest moments of my life. It was such a departure from anything I'd done. Yeah. I mean, if you were a manager and you were marketing somebody or something, you'd go like, dude, take Kenny from Johnny Cash and John Mellencamp and uh, Bob Seger and put him in the pumpkins. <laughs> I mean, that, like, and it worked. And here's what happened. I think I heard Sid Bernstein and his partner, M Mesh, Mensch, whatever his name is, yeah, from Q Prime, they went and saw me play. This is what someone told me. It could be all bullshit. They went and saw me play with Fogarty, and I think they were looking at it like, "All right, let's." This guy's obviously talented enough. Kenny plays with everybody. They need somebody really responsible that's going to yes. hold the fort down. It's not it wasn't be about a problem. the style, even. It was about your persona. Yeah. You're a professional. Yeah, and they need they somebody needed that's that. Be there. Study you know the what, shit. And you know what Billy said to me yeah. when we were rehearsing, Kenny. Don't don't even try to play like Jimmy. Smartest thing he told me. Don't don't. And he's right. It would have been suicide. Just you be completely you. And Jimmy told me years later when we were doing a drum clinic thing together in London. He says we're having dinner and he and, he and I are really good friends. He goes, dude, you're the only motherfucker that got it right. You just did your own thing. He says it was believable. And the fans at first, you know, they get fans are vicious. No, Jimmy, it's my fault, you know. But they didn't. They were like, ah, uh, that's pretty cool what he's doing. That's different. So I wasn't even trying to be like Jimmy. So what did they, did you have a limited capacity of what songs you could do? I mean, did you play like Tristessa or anything? No, the thing is what, what really pissed off the fans was that J Billy only did three songs from those albums. So it was it, all Adore. It was all Adore. And people going, da 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 Du, 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 du. They wanted to hear. I kept saying, Billy, we're going to do zero. Come on. And our last show. You guys we did, never played? Oh, just one time? We did one time. And it was at Dodger Stadium opening up for Kiss on Halloween. And it was I remember that. It was nationally televised. Yeah. It was gigantic. And I was the one that said, We should, Halloween, we should dress up like yep. the Beatles. And Bill went, okay, because we put wigs on, and we had a Beatles logo on my bass drum. The audience didn't get it. They go, ladies and gentlemen, 
the Beatles. You could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> so then we go, money. And we finish, do the Beatle bow, take our wigs off, and B Billy goes, and then I'm like, I was like, I'd been waiting for that the whole time we were on tour. Because he only played Bullets to Butterflies today in 1979. Yeah. Not one crash in 1979 either. And they kept screaming the hits, Cherub Rock. You know, and he wouldn't do it. He just See, that's so funny because just two, three years ago, they finally did the reunion show and Live Nation comes and they do big arenas all over. But I had went to so many shows. I've seen them probably over 100 times. Easy. And he would actually tour the record. He believes in like, if I record yeah. a record, I'm going to play that whole record yeah. out there. I'm not yeah. going to do a greatest hits every show. And I want to create new music. And you're not going to encapsulate me in this shit. That's brilliant. I'd love to see you play Ava Adore, though, the title track off Adore. That well, we did play. Oh, man. That was the one we'd always do all through Europe, like on TV, like Jules and Holland. And I just... We did, and, and we did, uh, we did Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and I think I don't and know. If perfect, we did, too. You guys played. Do we do perfect? perfect? Yeah, and we did Letterman doing it, and it was like, perfect, right? It was all these loopy things. I was trying. We he, <laughs> Billy hired two percussionists, completely different. This guy had old shit. This guy was, Dan Morris had all this, you know, technical stuff. And I remember going, oh, my God. Well, we go off stage at one point and I go, do you have his shit in your monitor? No. Do you have his stuff in your monitor? No. Can you hear me? Sort of. I said, no shit. It sounds like two lawnmowers <laughs> going at two different tempos. Dude, you got. We're a unit back here. And Billy didn't hear any of it because he had a stack of marshals in front of him. Yeah. But it was like complete like <laughs> shit going on all over the place. And I'm like going, I'm just holding everything down. And, and songs, I'd start every song with the tempo off the record with a click so that we were like really sure. doing. Dialed I in. Mean, I, you got to check out, uh, it's August 4th, 1998 at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And they recorded it and filmed it. It's badass. Is that on YouTube? And it's on YouTube. And right, it's badass, dude. I, I, it's two hours and 15 minutes, and I have to say, man, the thing, just watch how I'm studying Bill, Billy. I'm playing. I, 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 it was a flawless show, really. I mean, I'm sitting there, and you're playing the songs and the tempos, but there's a lot of room for jamming that he likes, and you don't. You, I have to guess what he's thinking. Yeah. There's this thing called radio. We're just doing this thing. Radio, radio. I'm trying to figure out this. Radio. Yeah, radio. And he's just, you're just vibing it. And that's what he likes. He wants creativity. And he told, told people in interviews, and he was right. He said, I'm going to make, I'm going to have Kenny play thing, playing with so many dynamics in this band. And he's right. He had me play so. We'd start the show with. Was it Sheila? Was that on that Adora? Was it? To Sheila. To Sheila. Yeah. It's like, Gini, we start soft. God. First song, it wasn't powerful. And then it got bigger and bigger. I mean, 
motherfucker was a genius. He is a genius. What was it like, real quick, uh, touring with them? Did you guys hang out a lot, or was it kind of like, you go to your room, you go to your room, let's meet at 5 o'clock, lobby call? Well, first of all, we were in a different uh, country every day. I mean, dudes, we was one day we were in three countries. We played uh, Dublin, the U2 guys came. We played small venue, too. The U2 guys, uh, a bunch of them, yeah, the U2, the main, not, not Adam, but the other three were there. And it was interesting talking to Mullins, Larry, uh, Larry Mullins Jr. He, he, he's a band guy. He could see all the dynamics. Wow. He just, he, told, he told me shit that was going on. I went, oh, brilliant that you saw that. He could see all the band dynamics because he gets it. So then we got hammered tonight. We then fly on our jet to um, the Netherlands through the, the Pink Pop Festival. And I'm hanging out with Chamberlain, uh, you know, um, Matt Chamberlain. He was playing with... Um, Pearl Jam. Who? Pearl Not Jam. Pearl, the, uh, the, uh, Fiona Apple. Oh, yeah, 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 that was before. And we were hanging, and it was like, and you know, garbage was hanging out. I mean, the pumpkins were huge. And then after we do that show, it's like 250,000 people there. After we do that show, we get back on the jet and fly to, to Paris. Wow. I mean, it was like, I mean, there wasn't much time to hang. The guy I hung out with most the time was uh, Mike Garson, the keyboard player who was on uh, with Bowie forever. And he, uh, just a, a beautiful cat, like a Buddha kind of guy. Yeah, I asked Billy to come on here. He said he's going to consider it because he said he had such a, an yeah. amazing time making the record in this room. A lot of good times, he said. So, Billy, we're ready for you. Uh, the next album, Machina, Chamberlain Returns, yeah. which is another amazing record. Had Billy let you know that this was only one tour that you were going to be filling in? I had a feeling because what happened was the day after, the next day after the, um, I kind of told Billy, I, I want to record with the Bumpkins. You know, that means a lot to me. And uh, Billy's very sensitive. I mean, he, he there's a, that side of him. Yeah. So... The day after the the gig at, with the Kiss Halloween, he asked me to do two songs on a Tony Iommi solo record. Wow! Uh, producing? Over, uh, it was just Iommi. I know. It was oh, but was Billy producing? Or yeah, playing? Okay. and playing. It was really a, a difficult. It was thirteen hour session on one day, and there was no lyrics. I never heard the vocals until the album came out. It was a great. It was a uh, different producers did different. Yeah, I love that. I think only one song of ours got on the record, but you know you had all these different artists playing with Tony and Billy walks in. I've already met Tony. Tony's the sweetest guy in the world. Billy goes, comes in, takes his coat off, picks up. I thought he picked up a bass, but maybe it was a guitar. He says, "Tony, give me a g give me a lick." He has a photographic memory, by the way, Billy. Yeah. And so then he says, give me another one. He looks at me and goes, we're in the control room. He goes, oh, you, dog, go to drums. <laughs> so I go, I go to drums. I'm there. And... Dude, I mean, they, they, it was just, they were, he was com composing on the spot. And I'd be writing, okay, A theme, B theme, uh, purple feel, green feel. I mean, I just was making up. Finally, Billy goes, no, Kenny, the chorus. I'm like, oh, fuck. I take my headphones off. I go in the control room. I go to the second engineer and says, here's 20 bucks. When they talk, because they were all in the control room recording. I was by myself. When they talk... 
Here's 20 bucks. Hit the talk back button down so I can hear what the fuck they're saying. And I walked out. <laughs> what I studio was like, it? Henson B. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, it wasn't Henson B. It, where was it? Uh, home studio, maybe? No, it wasn't a home studio. It was one of the big... I'll look it up on Discord. I wanted to say, because when I walked... Henson B, you, you, you have to go this way to get into the room. Because then you can go back to D that way. Yeah. No, you can go this way. It might have been Henson B. Okay. It was and Henson, though. I think so. Yeah. But uh, uh, you, still sp- you still speak with him, Billy? I just sent a message to him, uh, Man Cow. Do you know Man Cow? The, the Muller, DJ? yeah. So Man Cow, I just did a thing, and I said, I'm going to be up in Chicago recording in January. I says, oh, really? Billy, Kenny's coming to town. Let's get together. Billy says yes. <laughs> Billy and him are good friends, yeah. Really good friends. Man Cow was a gigantic rock personality, kind of like a Howard Stern on Q101 yeah. uh, in Chicagoland. Uh, still has a radio show Dude, to this that day. guy got, lost his virginity to Jack and Diana in a cornfield in Kansas. <laughs> That's what he tells me. His Chris Farley stories, too, are him, him and Chris Farley, because Chris Farley lived in the Hancock building in wow. Chicago, but they Dude. would hang out nonstop. Can you imagine those two together? I got to touch down on a few more things. Yep. I appreciate you so much. Uh, we're in the room that Van Halen did so much work. Um, I mean, I'm b- obsessed with it. We can't sit in here and not talk about Alex Van Halen. Oh, yeah. Did Al- Van Halen have a big effect on you um, on those records? Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> because they were so authentic. Every single player in that band was the real deal. I can't. How many guitar players reinvented guitar? Three? Jimi Hendrix, Eddie, maybe Jeff Beck. You know what I mean? Jimmy Page maybe, but really, Eddie, I mean, this guy's a genius. I mean, we all know he was wild. He drank a lot and did, but dude, this guy was a mad scientist. He would spend hours and hours every day reinventing shit moving pickups from an oh, old yeah. guitar and, the, and rewiring this and these guys were living it and alex how many there's very few drummers i'm one of the lucky ones you can hear me on the radio especially on a metal camp so you go, oh that's kenny he's got that sound but alex had that sound Big every time. fucking time is you hear it's like in his style he was very heavily in, influenced by bonham but he created his own thing and then the brothers and then you know then uh, you know with, i mean back when david lee Roth with i mean melon camp somehow we did a big show in toronto i don't know how we could be done maybe it was sctv or something and then we go to a van halen concert and this is back when they melon had, camp went to a van halen concert no john the band oh. did and this is when they just had jump out. So, you know, David Lee Roth's got the blonde hair. He's running around with leather pants with his ass cheeks hanging out with a horse tail. And the audience just looks like strippers and hookers. <laughs> and we're a bunch of Indiana guys. I felt like I had like a straw hat on, overalls, and some mud boots and a straw in my mouth compared to what we did and what they were doing. They were like rock gods. They and could play. Yeah, that's the other thing. They could play. It wasn't like I won't mention bands that it's more look 
than playing. We were talking about that earlier when you walked in this room, you know, they tracked all that stuff live because they could. Because they could, man. Yeah. They Dude, I mean, and so, uh, and then I got to do, play with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony and Chickenfoot. Uh, I've recorded and performed with them, and I mean, God, I mean, my, you could, Michael Anthony, his vocals. I've never heard him not sing in tune, or Sammy, and he could be drinking all night on stage, and his bass playing is impeccable. Yeah. Super talent. You know, I mean, that, and that was the, mo the least featured guy, and, but he was like huge in that band. All those vocals, upper background vocals, him. In, like in the 98 Bulls, they were just perfect role players. And also the drum sounds. It wasn't just a guitar world in Van Halen. Oh. You know, Alex had such distinctive drum sounds, especially you know, in those early records, those fat, warm sounds, the identifiable snare, the attack on the snare. The snare, um, yeah. I mean, And the toms. You know, yeah. Ludwig player, yeah. Rosewood snare, I think, which was uh, yeah. my favorite With a record. lot of tape on it. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was the thing. At first, I went, it was the opposite. <laughs> Mine was wide open. Dying. His was like, but it, how do you, you name the very few drummers have a, a sound where you go, oh, that's him. No, nah, man, he, and the music, it was endless. It just kept coming out and coming out. Once, you're lucky. Twice, okay. Three times, you're the shit. And it kept coming out like Zeppelin, just kept coming out, coming out. And then uh, read Sammy Hagar's book, it, I mean, The Red Rocker yeah. and the way he got in and, and well, he did that stuff here too, you know. Uh, Sammy did. He did it. Well, that big fifty-five song was done here. Plus, he, the mantra stuff was done. He was Rock here. Candy was done in this room. What? <laughs> Rock Candy Dude, was I done play, here. And I get to play all those songs when I do stuff with uh, when uh, Jason Bonham can't do it, I do it. And oh, that's so Rock cool. Candy was done here. Yeah. Ted <laughs> Templeman <laughs> produced <laughs> Matros. God. <laughs> Amazing. I, I could literally talk to you for so many hours about so many different things. Yeah. I feel biased because we're both about Indiana and I want, you know, I, I had to hear the, the Bellingham and the, the Pumpkin stories, but you've done so much work. How many albums have you played on, do you think? 2,000? It's probably more than that, but but I had to come up with when that autobiography came out. They said we need stats. We need how many drumsticks have you broken? I was just, Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> I broke eighteen one night with with Mellencamp. But so I came up with looking at, through all my discography. And the best I could do is three hundred million records sold. I'm on because I'm on three that sold forty million. Two Celine Dion's, and then uh, Bad Out of Hell two uh, Meatloaf. I'll do anything for love, and I won't do that. Bon Jovi, uh, uh, Ricky Martin with uh, with Living La Vida Loca on it. I didn't do Living La Vida, La Vida Loca, but I'm on the album. I did four other songs. She bangs. I did. She bangs. She bangs. Wait, uh, was it? Took a bang, bang. Took a bang, bang. Took a bang. Was yeah. it? Yeah, I did that one. Is that what's the title? Sugar bang, bang. Sugar bang, bang. Boom. Anyway, that sold like 18 million. Uh, I mean, it's just so that. Much I know. It's it's you know the weirdest thing when people go. Kenny Aronoff has played with. Uh, they don't know where to begin. They go Malakamp, I guess Fogarty. Uh, yeah. yeah, they don't know where to begin. Are you sick of talking about some of these stories? Not at all. I love it. Yeah, it's appealing, and it's, also I mean this book is the, incredible. The thing that's trippy about my career. Okay, you're lucky if you make it in a band that has any that isn't a one-hit wonder. Then, 
The other world is you're lucky if you make it a session player. So somehow, I did both at the highest level. But the thing that's really trippy is stylistically, the guy who, like I said, is I'm recording with the high women, Johnny mm -hmm. Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings. At night, I'm doing Meatloaf. Then I fly on the weekend to do the Buddy Rich Big Band live concert. Wait, the high women or high the women. highway men? Highway men. Oh, you retract with them? I did. And they Jesus. asked me to go on tour. It was another tour it turned out. Manager goes, uh, let me get this right. So you're saying no to Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings? I went, yep. I, didn't want, I wasn't ready to leave mountain camp. And they said, so... To play with those guys, uh, you know, and Willie and um, and then you know, recently I, I had played a year well, and a half yeah. with Jerry Lee Lewis, and I did that purposely because Jerry's the last guy, and Willie are the la when they're gone, it's over. The real guys. I mean, I went to Jerry's birthday party during COVID, and Jerry he lives in Mississippi. Gotcha. You go to Memphis and drive a half hour, okay. and he lives in Mississippi, and there's his cousin Jimmy Swaggart, the preacher and Mickey Gilly, and I'm in their house with like 25 people. You got <laughs> President Clinton, you got uh, Peyton Manning, you got Billy Gibbons, you got Keith Richards, you got all the country, be all sending in messages, and then I got to play with, I did Amazing Grace with Jimmy Swaggart. He goes, son, it's so great to meet you. God has blessed you, and Jerry says you're the greatest rock. I mean, with that voice, I'm like, this is, this is historic. This is just, oh, and that same guy played with the Pumpkins and started a band with Tony Iommi. Oh, and with Leonard Bernstein conducting Sibelius' Fifth Symphony when you're 21 years old, one of the a great timpani part. I mean, it's just like, it's... It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling, and I can't say this is why that happened. Who the fuck knows? You just got to tap like, into life, the momentum of it. Things come into play, I believe, in the cosmos and... When these things kind of appear in front of you, you know, you recognize gotta, them. Yes, yeah, exactly. and it's not always obvious. That's the whole point. I know. Going back to Indiana was so unobvious. It's not always obvious, and that's so. It's a combination of a lot of things: intuition, the the, the universe, hard work, self discipline, awareness, uh, your personality. Yeah, you know, uh, that's Wentz such good to have. Even you know, when I was in school, they said you got to be nice to everybody, which yeah. I've carried throughout my whole life because you don't know who's going to be the next Steven Spielberg or the next John Mellencamp, or and they're going to call you when they need a drummer or a, a DP or a guitar player. Well, I mean, the Don's, producers pick the instruments. Don said it in that book. He said, "I hire Kenny because he he saves my sessions. He motivates people." Yeah, and a real true team player. See, it's not just good enough that I'm great on a record. To get the song on the radio to be number one, I need the bass player, the guitar player, everybody to do a good job together. So it's not just about me anymore, and I understand that. So it's about making people, and it's natural for me to do that. Without, I'm not calculating it. I just do it. Yeah, anyway. It's fascinating. I can't wait to get into this book. Um, let me go speed around for you. We got Glenn Sobel in yep. the house too, a great drummer coming on the next episode yep. here. How did you, um, or do you go back to Indiana often? No, my son lives there. Uh, last time I was there when I gave a speech at Buskirk Chumley right before the pandemic, and I haven't been there since. You don't own a home there or anything? No. Okay. But we got to do something cool down there. We, we should bring it. some let's big make, bands or Orianthi, and you'll play drums on the next Carmen or record even, I'm doing. Or yeah. 
music, but then we should do this too in yeah. front of people. That would be cool. At Buskirk. Yes. I can do a little motivation. We'll do some music and then you interview and let people know what's, what Indiana boys, when they left, this is some of the stuff that we've done in LA. Yeah. And I think people will love it. There's some we cool can put together a deck. I can help put a, a deck together that follows us. Oh, yeah. We could 100% do that. I love that idea. That yeah. is genius. Um, I got a couple questions from our Twitter. Is there anyone you've played, you've not played with that you would really like to? Josh Holm. Josh Holm. Queens of Stone Age. Yeah. Queens yeah. of Stone Age or any. any You're any, friends with him, but you haven't played with him? We're friends, but no, I have not played with him, no. Wow. I mean, I, I just think he's brilliant and dave Grohl. i've played with dave you know at kennedy center honors we played maybe three times together but um yeah josh holm dave Grohl, jeff beck in the band and dave has to play bass jeff beck we just played the loud hailer album which yeah. bones uh uk is a part of uh, that girl group uh kenny was blown away he thought that was some cool unbelievable stuff. check out uh the revolution will be televised off the loud hailer Jeff Beck album. That might make you shit your pants. Um, just two more questions. What's some advice you could give to that freshman student student studying drums in Indiana that's down the street at Musicians Institute? Nineteen years old, freshman class yeah. at MI right now. What do you say to those kids? Just you got in twenty twenty one. Yeah, practice as much as you can. Practice as much as you can. There's no shortcuts. It's always going to come down to practice. Be Tom Brady. Tom Brady is still coachable, still working out, still doing. He's won seven Super Bowls. It's a lifestyle. It's no shortcuts. Just keep practicing, studying, learning. If it's truly what you are and who, what you want to do, then do it 24-7. Stay healthy. And three Cs. Know how to connect with people. Know how to communicate with people because then you can collaborate with people. Yes. Well, in closing, aren't you glad you didn't go home when John Mellencamp tried to fire you? Imagine where you could have been if you didn't go home at at Cherokee Studios when they tried to can you. I know. I think Simply, about it all the time. That's incredible. I, mean, I would have been somewhere, but it wouldn't have been where I am now. It would have been a different journey. That's I mean, then, because all those big hits hadn't come yet. They oh. were yet to come. You could have went home and said, oh, well, I tried it. That was cool for a little bit. Well, but I've fuck you, man. That's I'm two weeks. Here. Yeah. Man, you just makes you wonder about the universe and stuff. You got to stay here because you guys have some serious shit to do together. That's a message for everyone in life. Don't <laughs> quit. Stick around, if anything, for curiosity. Uh, Mr. Kenny Aronoff, is social media is our at Kenny Aronoff official? Well, um, let's official start, Aronoff? Yeah, uh, Twitter is official, official Aronoff. Aronoff. Uh, Instagram is Kenny Aronoff. LinkedIn is Kenny Aronoff. And Facebook is Kenny Aronoff. But... If I, <laughs> you guys, I ran out of adding names like 12 years ago. So I've got thousands of people, but I can't dump somebody and add somebody. So there's a fan page too. And then TikTok, I still haven't done. I've got to get on that. It's, it's insane how big that is. But I know, it's amazing. Um, also, uh, Kenny gives lessons. I remember I contacted you a long time ago. Are you still doing the lessons? Very little, but if you read, go on my website, there's a form you can fill out. And uh, yeah, I have a And consulting, though, you do yeah. all kinds of cool well, stuff. Well, yeah, I got actually, yeah, I do consulting. Uh, I have a, a speaking business, but that an agent books me for that. I do have a studio called Uncommon Studios LA. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, people hire me, like I'm right now writing charts for 25 songs for maybe seven different artists. 
that I'll record next week. Yeah, uh, Uncommon Studios LA. Mm -hmm. You've had that for like 15 years, right? Yeah, I'm rebuilding my websites for everything, but uh, yeah, Uncommon Studios LA, and the people just, they send me their files and I record drums on them. They can't afford to be in these great places. There's nothing that replaces these places, nothing. Yeah. Do you think that's important in 2021 for a band to record in a recording studio yes. to get the essence of Van Halen where Eddie Van Halen Absolutely. stood right there and Kenny Aronoff set his drums up on this record and yeah. you know, this guy stood over here. I mean, look, it's permanently 1972. And Plus, these rooms sound better than any. My room is, I've made it work. I got a lot of Neve, API, BA stuff. Yeah. But there's nothing like these rooms. These rooms are expensive rooms. They're designed acoustically. They have a sound that you that the room is like the the other member of the band. Big time. It literally is another member of the band. I shot that documentary. I went all over the country, uh, going to different recording studios. I took a band with me. You did to demo. It's in post production right now. But we went to Arlen, Electric Ladyland, wow. Hyde Street in San Francisco. We're just everywhere. But this room right here we're in is the best sounding drum room. I mean. Without a doubt, in all the studios, yeah, and I, the I'd drummer I was with agreed. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible to to find that out. You know, and it took going to all those studios. There's some that studios so in Texas. We were in there four hours getting drum sounds. So that's what you found out by going all to these rooms. Well, that wasn't the mission of the doc. No, but, but that's was, what yeah, you found 100%. out. Hundred percent. I mean, it just this really is definitely one of the best. This this room. This room and, and B is a brighter version and Henson's the crystal room. Yeah. Just a little bit tighter, but it's that not too big. Like A is too big yeah. for drums, I think. You're always putting gobos around the drum. This room is like big but controllable big. Big time. You can work with it in the mix. And the nostalgia I think brings out a lot too. Oh, I mean, you got John Bonham that had a set right where I'm sitting. You had Alex Van Halen. You had, I mean, just Jimmy Chamber. I mean, everybody. Yeah, everybody, everybody ends up here. This room good. was built in '67. Charlie Watts, Kenny Aronoff. I mean, I appreciate you so much coming in again. This book is going to be a great read. I can't wait to hear it's all these great. stories. We could talk for six hours. You got to come back. Yeah. When, Yes, again, you, we should do an interview on what wasn't in the book. Because <laughs> <laughs> be it was out. 600 pages. It's 325. Let's call a sponsor, go down and get Dave Kubiak involved in Bloomington. Yeah. I'd love to go down there with you and Let's see, uh, you know, Miley Cyrus's guitar players in from Bloomington as well. And What? Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Kenny Arnoff, everyone. Thank you so much, sir. Awesome, dude. That's a round table. Thanks for having me. <laughs>